Chapter One of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London. Mills and Boone Limited, 49 Rupert Street, London, W. Published 1915. Copyright in the United States of America by Jack London. Chapter 1. From the first, the voyage was going wrong. Routed out of my hotel on a bitter March morning, I had crossed Baltimore and reached the pier end precisely on time. At nine o'clock, the tug was to have taken me down the bay and put me on board the Elsinore and with growing irritation i sat frozen inside my taxicab and waited on the seat outside the driver and wada sat hunched in a temperature perhaps half a degree colder than mine and there was no tug possum the fox terrier puppy galbraith had so inconsiderately foisted upon me whimpered and shivered on my lap inside my greatcoat and under the fur robe but he would not settle down. Continually he whimpered and clawed and struggled to get out. And, once out and bitten by the cold, with equal insistence he whimpered and clawed to get back. His unceasing plaint and movement was anything but sedative to my jangled nerves. In the first place I was uninterested in the brute. He meant nothing to me. I did not know him. Time and again, as I drearily waited, I was on the verge of giving him to the driver. Once, when two little girls, evidently the Warfinger's daughters, went by, my hand reached out to the door to open it so that I might call to them and present them with the puling little wretch. A farewell surprise package from Galbraith. He had arrived at the hotel the night before, by express, from New York. It was Galbraith's way yet he might so easily have been decently like other folk and sent fruit, or flowers even. But no, his affectionate inspiration had to take the form of a yelping, yapping, two-months-old puppy, and with the advent of the terrier the trouble had begun. The hotel clerk judged me a criminal before the act I had not even had time to meditate. And then Wada, on his own initiative, and out of his own foolish stupidity, had attempted to smuggle the puppy into his room and been caught by a house detective. Promptly Wada had forgotten all his English and lapsed into hysterical Japanese, and the house detective remembered only his Irish, while the hotel clerk had given me to understand, in no uncertain terms, that it was only what he had expected of me. Damn the dog, anyway! and damn Galbraith, too. And as I froze on in the cab on that bleak pier-end, I damned myself as well, and the mad freak that had started me voyaging on a sailing-ship around the Horn. By ten o'clock a nondescript youth arrived on foot, carrying a suitcase, which was turned over to me a few minutes later by the wharfinger. It belonged to the pilot, he said, and gave instructions to the chauffeur how to find some other pier from which, at some indeterminate time, I would be taken aboard the Elsinore by some other tug. This served to increase my irritation. 
Why should I not have been informed, as well as the pilot? An hour later, still in my cab and stationed at the shore end of the new pier, the pilot arrived. Anything more unlike a pilot I could not have imagined. Here was no blue-jacketed, weather-beaten son of the sea, but a soft-spoken gentleman, for all the world the type of successful businessman one meets in all the clubs. He introduced himself immediately, and I invited him to share my freezing cab with Possum and the baggage. That some change had been made in the arrangements by Captain West was all he knew, though he fancied the tug would come along any time. And it did, at one in the afternoon, after I had been compelled to wait and freeze for four mortal hours. During this time I fully made up my mind that I was not going to like this Captain West. Although I had never met him, his treatment of me from the outset had been, to say the least, cavalier. When the Elsinore lay in Erie Basin, just arrived from California with a cargo of barley, I had crossed over from New York to inspect what was to be my home for many months. I had been delighted with the ship and the cabin accommodation. Even the stateroom selected for me was satisfactory, and far more spacious than I had expected. But when I peeped into the captain's room I was amazed at its comfort. When I say that it opened directly into a bathroom, and that, among other things, it was furnished with a big brass bed such as one would never suspect to find at sea, I have said enough. Naturally, I had resolved that the bathroom and the big brass bed should be mine. When I asked the agents to arrange with the captain, they seemed non-committal and uncomfortable. I don't know in the least what it is worth, I said, and I don't care. Whether it costs one hundred and fifty dollars or five hundred, I must have those quarters. Harrison and Gray, the agents, debated silently with each other, and scarcely thought Captain West would see his way to the arrangement. Then he is the first sea captain I ever heard of that wouldn't, I asserted confidently. Why, the captains of all the Atlantic liners regularly sell their quarters. But Captain West is not the captain of an Atlantic liner, Mr. Harrison observed gently. Remember, I am to be on that ship many a month, I retorted. Why, heavens, bid him up to a thousand if necessary. We'll try, said Mr. Gray, but we warn you not to place too much dependence on our efforts. Captain West is in Searsport at the present time, and we will write him today. To my astonishment, Mr. Gray called me up several days later to inform me that Captain West had declined my offer. Did you offer him up to a thousand? I demanded. What did he say? He regretted that he was unable to concede what you asked, Mr. Gray replied. A day later I received a letter from Captain West. The writing and the wording were old-fashioned and formal. He regretted not having yet met me, and assured me that he would see personally that my quarters were made comfortable. For that matter, he had already dispatched orders to Mr. Pike, the first mate of the Elsinore, to knock out the partition between my stateroom and the spare stateroom adjoining. Further, and this is where my dislike for Captain West began, he informed me that if, when once well at sea, I should find myself dissatisfied, he would gladly, in that case, exchange quarters with me. 
of course after such a rebuff i knew that no circumstance could ever persuade me to occupy captain west's brass bed and it was this captain nathaniel west whom i had not yet met who had now kept me freezing on pier ends through four miserable hours the less i saw of him on the voyage the better was my decision and it was with a little tickle of pleasure that i thought of the many boxes of books i had dispatched on board from new york thank the lord i did not depend on sea captains for entertainment i turned possum over to wada who was settling with the cabman and while the tug sailors were carrying my luggage on board i was led by the pilot to an introduction with captain west at the first glimpse i knew that he was no more a sea captain than the pilot was a pilot i had seen the best of the breed the captains of the liners and he no more resembled them than did he resemble the bluff-faced gruff-voiced skippers i had read about in books by his side stood a woman of whom little was to be seen and who made a warm and gorgeous blob of colour in the huge muff and boa of red fox in which she was well-nigh buried my god his wife i darted in a whisper at the pilot going along with him i had expressly stipulated with mr harrison when engaging passage that the one thing i could not possibly consider was the skipper of the elsinore taking his wife on the voyage and mr harrison had smiled and assured me that captain west would sail unaccompanied by a wife it's his daughter the pilot replied under his breath come to see him off i fancy his wife died over a year ago they say that is what sent him back to sea he'd retired you know captain west advanced to meet me and before our outstretched hands touched before his face broke from repose to greeting and the lips moved to speech i got the first astonishing impact of his personality long lean in his face a touch of race i as yet could only sense he was as cool as the day was cold as poised as a king or emperor as remote as the farthest fixed star as neutral as a proposition of euclid and then just ere our hands met a twinkle of oh such distant and controlled geniality quickened the many tiny wrinkles in the corner of the eyes the clear blue of the eyes was suffused by an almost colourful warmth the face too seemed similarly to suffuse the thin lips harsh set the instant before were as gracious as bernhardt's when she moulded sound into speech so curiously was i affected by this first glimpse of captain west that i was aware of expecting to fall from his lips i knew not what words of untold beneficence and wisdom yet he uttered most commonplace regrets at the delay in a voice provocative of a fresh surprise to me it was low and gentle almost too low yet clear as a bell and touched with a faint reminiscent twang of old new england and this is the young woman who is guilty of the delay he concluded my introduction to his daughter margaret this is mr pathurst her gloved hand promptly emerged from the fox-skins to meet mine and i found myself looking into a pair of grey eyes bent steadily and gravely upon me it was discomfiting that cool penetrating searching gaze it was not that it was challenging but that it was so insolently business-like it was much in the very way one would look at a new coachman he was about to engage 
I did not know then that she was to go on the voyage, and that her curiosity about the man who was to be a fellow-passenger for half a year was therefore only natural. Immediately she realized what she was doing, and her lips and eyes smiled as she spoke. As we moved on to enter the tug's cabin, I heard Possum's shivering whimper rising to a shriek, and went forward to tell Wada to take the creature in out of the cold. I found him hovering about my luggage, wedging my dressing-case securely upright by means of my little automatic rifle. I was startled by the mountain of luggage around which mine was no more than a fringe. Ship stores was my first thought, until I noticed the number of trunks, boxes, suitcases, and parcels and bundles of all sorts. The initials on what looked suspiciously like a woman's hat trunk caught my eye, M.W., yet Captain West's first name was Nathaniel. On closer investigation I did find several N.W.'s, but everywhere I could see M.W.'s. Then I remembered that he had called her Margaret. I was too angry to return to the cabin, and paced up and down the cold deck, biting my lips with vexation. I had so expressly stipulated with the agents that no captain's wife was to come along. The last thing under the sun I desired in the pet quarters of a ship was a woman. But I had never thought about a captain's daughter. For two cents I was ready to throw the voyage over and return on the tug to Baltimore. By the time the wind caused by our speed had chilled me bitterly, I noticed Miss West coming along the narrow deck, and could not avoid being struck by the spring and vitality of her walk. Her face, despite its firm moulding, had a suggestion of fragility that was belayed by the robustness of her body. At least one would argue that her body must be robust from her fashion of movement of it, though little could one divine from the lines of it under the shapelessness of the firs. I turned away on my heel, and fell moodily to contemplating the mountain of luggage. A huge packing-case attracted my attention, and I was staring at it when she spoke at my shoulder. "'That's really what caused the delay,' she said. "'What is it?' I asked incuriously. "'Why, the Elsinore's piano, all renovated. "'When I made up my mind to come, I telegraphed Mr. Pike. "'He's the mate, you know. "'He did his best.' It was the fault of the piano house. And while we waited today, I gave them a piece of my mind they'll not forget in a hurry. She laughed at the recollection, and commenced to peek and peer into the luggage, as if in search of some particular piece. Having satisfied herself, she was starting back when she paused and said, "'Won't you come in the cabin where it's warm? We won't be there for half an hour.' "'When did you decide to make this voyage?' I demanded abruptly. So quick was the look she gave me that I knew she had in that moment caught all my disgruntlement and disgust. Two days ago,' she answered. "'Why?' Her readiness for give and take took me aback, and before I could speak she went on. "'Now you're not to be at all silly about my coming, Mr. Pathurst. I probably know more about long voyaging than you do, and we're all going to be comfortable and happy.' You can't bother me, and I promise you I won't bother you. I've sailed with passengers before, and I've learned to put up with more than they ever proved they were able to put up with. So there, let us start right, and it won't be any trouble to keep on going right. I know what is the matter with you. You think you'll be called upon to entertain me. 
please know that i do not need entertainment i never saw the longest voyage that was too long and i always arrive at the end with too many things not done for the passage ever to have been tedious and i don't play chopsticks end of chapter one at evernorth health services we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best it's possible pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line it's possible complex specialty care that cares about your roi it's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions that's wonder made possible learn more at evernorth.com wonder chapter two of the mutiny of the elsinore this librivox recording is in the public domain the mutiny of the elsinore by jack london chapter two the elsinore fresh loaded with coal lay very deep in the water when we came alongside i knew too little about ships to be capable of admiring her lines and besides i was in no mood for admiration i was still debating with myself whether or not to chuck the whole thing and return on the tug from all of which it must not be taken that i am a vacillating type of man on the contrary the trouble was that at no time from the first thought of it had i been keen for the voyage practically the reason i was taking it was because there was nothing else i was keen on for some time now life had lost its savour i was not jaded nor was i exactly bored but the zest had gone out of things i had lost taste for my fellow-men and all their foolish little serious endeavours for a far longer period i had been dissatisfied with women i had endured them but i had been too analytic of the faults of their primitiveness of their almost ferocious devotion to the destiny of sex to be enchanted with them and i had come to be oppressed by what seemed to me the futility of art a pompous legerdemain a consummate charlatanry that deceived not only its devotees but its practitioners in short i was embarking on the elsinore because it was easier to than not yet everything else was as equally and perilously easy that was the curse of the condition into which i had fallen that was why as i stepped upon the deck of the elsinore i was half of a mind to tell them to keep my luggage where it was and bid captain west and his daughter good day i almost think what decided me was the welcoming hospitable smile miss west gave me as she started directly across the deck for the cabin and the knowledge that it must be quite warm in the cabin mr pike the mate i had already met when i visited the ship in erie basin he smiled a stiff cracked-faced smile that i knew must be painful but did not offer to shake hands turning immediately to call orders to half a dozen frozen-looking youths and aged men who shambled up from somewhere in the waist of the ship mr pike had been drinking that was patent his face was puffed and discolored and his large gray eyes were bitter and bloodshot i lingered with a sinking heart watching my belongings come aboard and chiding my weakness of will which prevented me from uttering the few words that would put a stop to it 
as for the half-dozen men who were now carrying the luggage aft into the cabin they were unlike any concept i had ever entertained of sailors certainly on the liners i had observed nothing that resembled them one a most vivid-faced youth of eighteen smiled at me from a pair of remarkable italian eyes but he was a dwarf so short was he that he was all sea-boots and sou'wester and yet he was not entirely italian so certain was i that i asked the mate who answered morosely him shorty he's a dago half-breed the other half's jap or malay one old man who i learned was a boatswain was so decrepit that i thought he had been recently injured his face was stolid and ox-like and as he shuffled and dragged his brogans over the deck he paused every few steps to place both hands on his abdomen and execute a queer pressing lifting movement months were to pass in which i saw him do this thousands of times ere i learned that there was nothing the matter with him and that his action was purely a habit his face reminded me of the man with the hoe save that it was unthinkably and abysmally stupider and his name as i was to learn of all names was sundry byers and he was boatswain of the fine american sailing ship elsinore rated one of the finest sailing ships afloat of this group of aged men and boys that moved the luggage along i saw only one called henry a youth of sixteen who approximated in the slightest what i had conceived all sailors to be like he had come off a training ship the mate told me and this was his first voyage to sea his face was keen-cut alert as were his bodily movements and he wore sailor-appearing clothes with sailor-seeming grace in fact as i was to learn he was to be the only sailor-seeming creature fore and aft the main crew had not yet come aboard but was expected at any moment the mate vouchsafed with a snarl of ominous expectancy those already on board were the miscellaneous ones who had shipped themselves in new york without the mediation of boarding-house masters and what the crew itself would be like god alone could tell so said the mate shorty the japanese or malay and italian half-caste the mate told me was an able seaman though he had come out of steam and this was his first sailing voyage ordinary seamen mr pike snorted in reply to a question we don't carry landsmen forget it every clodhopper and cow walloper these days is an able seaman that's the way they rank and are paid the merchant service is all shot to hell there ain't no more sailors they all died years ago before you were born even i could smell the raw whiskey on the mate's breath yet he did not stagger nor show any signs of intoxication not until afterwards was i to know that his willingness to talk was most unwanted and was where the liquor gave him away it had been a grace had i died years ago he said rather than to a live to see sailors and ships pass away from the sea but i understand the elsinore is considered one of the finest i urged so she is to-day but what is she a damned cargo carrier she ain't built for sailin and if she was there ain't no sailors left to sail her lord lord the old clippers 
when i think of em the gamecock shootin' star flyin' fish witch of the wave staghound harvey birch canvasback fleetwing sea serpent northern light and when i think of the fleets of the tea clippers that used to load at hong kong and race the eastern passages a fine sight a fine sight i was interested here was a man a live man i was in no hurry to go into the cabin where i knew wada was unpacking my things so i paced up and down the deck with the huge mr pike huge he was in all conscious broad-shouldered heavy-boned and despite the profound stoop of his shoulders fully six feet in height you are a splendid figure of a man i complimented i was i was he muttered sadly and i caught the whiff of whisky strong on the air i stole a look at his gnarled hands any finger would have made three of mine his wrist would have made three of my wrist how much do you weigh i asked two hundred and ten but in my day at my best i tipped the scales close to two forty and the elsinore can't sail i said returning to the subject which had roused him i'll take you even anything from a pound of tobacco to a month's wages she won't make it around in a hundred and fifty days he answered yet i've come around in the old flying cloud in eighty-nine days eighty-nine days sir from sandy hook to frisco sixty men forward that was men and eight boys and drive 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 three hundred and seventy-four miles for a day's run under t'gallant sails and in the squalls eighteen knots a line not enough to time her eighty-nine days never beat and tied once by the old andrew jackson nine years afterward them was the days when did the andrew jackson tie her i asked because of a growing suspicion that he was having me in eighteen sixty was his prompt reply and you sailed in the flying cloud nine years before that and this is nineteen thirteen why that was sixty-two years ago i charged and i was seven years old he chuckled my mother was stewardess on the flying cloud i was born at sea i was boy when i was twelve on the herald of the morn when she made around in ninety-nine days half the crew in irons most of the time five men lost from aloft off the horn the points of our sheath knives broken square off knuckle dusters and belaying pins flying three men shot by the officers in one day the second mate killed dead and no one to know who done it and drive 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 ninety-nine days from land to land a run of seventeen thousand miles and east to west around cape stiff but that would make you sixty-nine years old i insisted which i am he retorted proudly and a better man at that than the scrubby younglings of these days a generation of em would die under the things i've been through did you ever hear of the sunny south she that was sold in havana to run slaves and changed her name to emanuela and you've sailed the middle passage i cried recollecting the old phrase i was on the manuela that day in mozambique channel when the brisk caught us with nine hundred slaves between decks only she wouldn't have caught us except for her having steam 
I continued to stroll up and down beside this massive relic of the past, and to listen to his hints and muttered reminiscence of old man-killing and man-driving days. He was too real to be true, and yet, as I studied his shoulder-stoop and the age-drag of his huge feet, I was convinced that his years were as he asserted. He spoke of a Captain Sonier's. He was a great captain, he was saying, and in the two years I sailed mate with him there was never a port I didn't jump the ship going in and stay in hiding until I sneaked aboard when she sailed again. But why? The men, on account of the men swearing blood and vengeance and warrants against me because of my ways of teaching em to be sailors. Why, the times I was caught and the fines the skipper paid for me, and yet it was my work that made the ship make money. He held up his huge paws, and as I stared at the battered, malformed knuckles, I understood the nature of his work. But all that stopped now, he lamented. A sailor's a gentleman these days. You can't raise your voice or your hand to them. At this moment he was addressed from the poop rail above by the second mate, a medium-sized, heavily built, clean-shaven, blond man. The tug's in sight with the crew, sir he announced. The mate grunted an acknowledgment, then added, Come on down, Mr. Mellaire, and meet our passenger. I could not help noting the air and carriage with which Mr. Mellaire came down the poop ladder and took his part in the introduction. He was courteous in an old-world way, soft-spoken, suave, and unmistakably from south of Mason and Dixon. A southerner, I said. Georgia, sir. He bowed and smiled as only a southerner can bow and smile. His features and expression were genial and gentle, and yet his mouth was the cruelest gash I have ever seen in a man's face. It was a gash. There is no other way of describing that harsh, thin-lipped, shapeless mouth that uttered gracious things so graciously. Involuntarily I glanced at his hands. Like the mates, they were thick-boned, broken-knuckled, and malformed. Back into his blue eyes I looked. On the surface of them was a film of light, a gloss of gentle kindness and cordiality, but behind that gloss I knew resided neither sincerity nor mercy. Behind that gloss was something cold and terrible that lurked and waited and watched, something cat-like, something inimical and deadly. Behind that gloss of soft light and of social sparkle was the live, fearful thing that had shaped that mouth into the gash it was. What I sensed behind in those eyes chilled me with its repulsiveness and strangeness. As I faced Mr. Mellaire, and talked with him, and smiled, and exchanged amenities, I was aware of the feeling that comes to one in the forest or jungle, when he knows unseen wild eyes of hunting animals are spying upon him. Frankly, I was afraid of the thing ambushed behind there in the skull of Mr. Mallaire. One so as a matter of course identifies form and feature with the spirit within. But I could not do this with the second mate. His face and form and manner and suave ease were one thing, inside which he, an entirely different thing, lay hid. I noticed Wada standing in the cabin door, evidently waiting to ask for instructions. I nodded and prepared to follow him inside. Mr. Pike looked at me quickly and said, Just a moment, Mr. Pathurst. 
He gave some orders to the second mate, who turned on his heel and started forward. I stood and waited for Mr. Pike's communication, which he did not choose to make until he saw the second mate well out of earshot. Then he leaned closely to me and said, Don't mention that little matter of my age to anybody. Each year I sign on, I sign my age one year younger. I am fifty-four now, on the articles. And you don't look a day older, I answered lightly, though I meant it in all sincerity. And I don't feel it. I can outwork and outgame the huskiest of the younglings. And don't let my age get to anyone's ears, Mr. Pathurst. Skippers are not particular for mates getting around the seventy mark, and owners neither. I've had my hopes for this ship, and I'd a got her, I think, except for the old man deciding to go to sea again. As if he needed the money, the old skinflint. Is he well off? I inquired. Well off? If I had a tenth of his money, I could retire on a chicken ranch in California and live like a fighting cock. Yes, if I had a fiftieth of what he's got salted away. Why, he owns more stock in all the Blackwood ships, and they've always been lucky and always earned money. I'm getting old, and it's about time I got a command. But no, the old cuss has to take it into his head to go to sea again, just as the berth's ripe for me to fall into. Again I started to enter the cabin, but was stopped by the mate. Mr. Pathurst, you won't mention about my age? No, certainly not, Mr. Pike, I said. End of chapter 2「The Mutiny of the Elsinore » Quite chilled through, I was immediately struck by the warm comfort of the cabin. All the connecting doors were open, making what I might call a large suite of rooms or a whale-house. The main deck entrance, on the port side, was into a wide, well-carpeted hallway. Into this hallway, from the port side, opened five rooms. First, on entering, the mates. Next, the two staterooms which had been knocked into one for me. Then the steward's room, and adjoining his, completing the row, a stateroom which was used for the slop-chest. Across the hall was a region with which I was not yet acquainted, though I knew it contained the dining-room, the bathrooms, the cabin proper, which was in truth a spacious living-room, the captain's quarters, and, undoubtedly, Miss West's quarters. I could hear her humming some air as she bustled about with her unpacking. The steward's pantry, separated by cross-halls, and by the stairway leading into the chart-room above on the poop, was placed strategically in the center of all its operations. Thus, on the starboard side of it were the staterooms of the captain and Miss West, forward of it were the dining-room and main cabin, while on the port side of it was the row of rooms I have described, two of which were mine. I ventured down the hall toward the stern, and found it opened into the stern of the Elsinore, forming a single large apartment at least thirty-five feet from side to side, and fifteen to eighteen feet in depth, curved, of course, to the lines of the ship's stern. This seemed a storeroom. 
I noted wash tubs, bolts of canvas, many lockers, hams and bacon hanging, a stepladder that led up through a small hatch to the poop, and in the floor another hatch. I spoke to the steward, an old Chinese, smooth-faced and brisk of movement, whose name I never learned, but whose age on the articles was fifty-six. "'What is down there?' I asked, pointing to the hatch in the floor. "'Him Lazarette,' he answered. "'And who eats there?' I indicated a table with two stationary sea-chairs. "'Him second table. Second mate and carpenter, him eat that table.' When I had finished giving instructions to Wada for the arranging of my things, I looked at my watch. It was early yet, only several minutes after three, so I went on deck again to witness the arrival of the crew. The actual coming on board from the tug I had missed, but forward of the midship's house I encountered a few laggards who had not yet gone into the forecastle. These were the worst for liquor, and a more wretched, miserable, disgusting group of men I had never seen in any slum. Their clothes were rags. Their faces were bloated, bloody, and dirty. I won't say they were villainous. They were merely filthy and vile. They were vile of appearance, of speech, and action. Come, come, get your dunnage into the forecastle. Mr. Pike uttered these words sharply from the bridge above. A light and graceful bridge of steel rods and plankings ran the full length of the Elsinore, starting from the poop, crossing the amidship house in the forecastle, and connecting with the forecastle head at the very bow of the ship. At the mate's command, the men reeled about and glowered up at him, one or two starting clumsily to obey. The others ceased their drunken yammering and regarded the mate sullenly. One of them, with a face mashed by some mad god in the making, and who afterwards was known to me as Larry, burst into a guffaw and spat insolently on the deck. Then, with utmost deliberation, he turned to his fellows and demanded loudly and huskily, "'Who in hell's the old stiff, anyways?' I saw Mr. Pike's huge form tense convulsively and involuntarily, and I noted the way his huge hand strained in their clutch on the bridge railing. Beyond that he controlled himself. "'Go on, you,' he said. "'I'll have nothing out of you. Get into the forecastle.' And then, to my surprise, he turned and walked aft along the bridge to where the tug was casting off its lines. So this was always high and mighty talk of kill and drive, I thought." Not until afterwards did I recollect, as I turned aft down the deck, that I saw Captain West leaning on the rail at the break of the poop and gazing forward. The tug's lines were being cast off, and I was interested in watching the maneuver until she had backed clear of the ship, at which moment, from forward, arose a queer babble of howling and yelping as numbers of drunken voices cried out that a man was overboard. The second mate sprang down the poop ladder and darted past me along the deck. The mate, still on the slender, white-painted bridge, that seemed no more than a spider thread, surprised me by the activity with which he dashed along the bridge to the midship house, leaped upon the canvas-covered longboat, and swung outboard where he might see. Before the men could clamber upon the rail, the second mate was among them, and it was he who flung a coil of line overboard. What impressed me particularly was the mental and muscular superiority of these two officers. Despite their age, 
the mate sixty-nine and the second mate at least fifty, their minds and their bodies had acted with the swiftness and accuracy of steel springs. They were potent. They were iron. They were perceivers, willers, and doers. They were as of another species compared with the sailors under them. While the latter, witnesses of the happening and directly on the spot, had been crying out in befuddled helplessness, and with slow wits and slower bodies been climbing upon the rail, the second mate had descended the steep ladder from the poop, covered two hundred feet of deck, sprung upon the rail, grasped the instant need of the situation, and cast the coil of line into the water. And of the same nature and quality had been the actions of Mr. Pike. He and Mr. Mellaire were masters over the wretched creatures of sailors by virtue of this remarkable difference of efficiency and will. Truly they were more widely differentiated from the men under them than were the men under them differentiated from hottentots, ay, or from monkeys. I, too, by this time, was standing on the big hawser bits in a position to see a man in the water who seemed deliberately swimming away from the ship. He was a dark-skinned Mediterranean of some sort, and his face, in a clear glimpse I caught of it, was distorted by frenzy. His black eyes were maniacal. The line was so accurately flung by the second mate that it fell across the man's shoulders, and for several strokes his arms tangled in it ere he could swim clear. This accomplished, he proceeded to scream some wild harangue, and once, as he uptossed his arms for emphasis, I saw in his hand the blade of a long knife. Bells were jangling on the tug as it started to the rescue. I stole a look up at Captain West. He had walked to the port side of the poop, where, hands in pockets, he was glancing, now forward at the struggling man, now aft at the tug. He gave no orders, betrayed no excitement, and appeared, I may well say, the most casual of spectators. The creature in the water seemed now engaged in taking off his clothes. I saw one bare arm, and then the other appear. In his struggles he sometimes sank beneath the surface, but always he emerged, flourishing the knife and screaming his addled harangue. He even tried to escape the tug by diving and swimming underneath. I strolled forward and arrived in time to see him hoisted in over the rail of the Elsinore. He was stark naked, covered with blood, and raving. He had cut and slashed himself in a score of places. From one wound in the wrist the blood spurted with each beat of the pulse. He was a loathsome, non-human thing. I have seen a scared orang in a zoo, and for all the world this bestial-faced, mowing, gibbering thing reminded me of the orang. The sailors surrounded him, laying hands on him, withstraining him, the while they guffawed and cheered. Right and left the two mates shoved them away, and dragged the lunatic down the deck and into her room in the midship house. I could not help marking the strength of Mr. Pike and Mr. Mallair. I had heard of the superhuman strength of madmen, but this particular madman was as a wisp of straw in their hands. Once into the bunk, Mr. Pike held down the struggling fool easily with one hand, while he dispatched the second mate for Marlin with which to tie the fellow's arms. Bughouse, Mr. Pike grinned at me. I've seen some bughouse crews in my time, but this one's the limit. 
"'What are you going to do?' I asked. "'The man will bleed to death.' "'And good riddance,' he answered promptly. "'We'll have our hands full of him until we can lose him somehow. "'When he gets easy, I'll sew him up, that's all, "'if I have to ease him with a clout of the jaw.' I glanced at the mate's huge paw and appreciated his anesthetic qualities. Out on the deck again I saw Captain West on the poop, hands still in pockets, quite uninterested, gazing at a blue break in the sky to the northeast. More than the mates and the maniac, more than the drunken callousness of the men, did this quiet figure, hands in pockets, impress upon me that I was in a different world from any I had known. Water broke in upon my thoughts by telling me he had been sent to say that Miss West was serving tea in the cabin. End of chapter 3「four of the Mutiny of the Elsinore This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London Chapter four The contrast as I entered the cabin was startling. All contrasts aboard the Elsinore promised to be startling. Instead of the cold, hard deck, my feet sank into soft carpet. In place of the mean and narrow room, built of naked iron, where I had left the lunatic, I was in a spacious and beautiful apartment. With the bawling of men's voices still in my ears, and with the pictures of their drink-puffed and filthy faces still vivid under my eyelids, I found myself greeted by a delicate-faced, prettily gowned woman, who sat beside a lacquered oriental table on which rested an exquisite tea-service of Canton China all was repose and calm the steward noiseless-footed expressionless was a shadow scarcely noticed that drifted into the room on some service and drifted out again not at once could i relax and miss west serving my tea laughed and said you look as if you have been seeing things the steward tells me a man has been overboard i fancy the cold water must have sobered him i resented her unconcern the man is a lunatic i said this ship is no place for him he should be sent ashore to some hospital i am afraid if we begin that we'd have to send two-thirds of our complement ashore one lump yes please i answered but the man has terribly wounded himself he is liable to bleed to death she looked at me for a moment her gray eyes serious and scrutinizing as she passed me my cup then laughter welled up in her eyes and she shook her head reprovingly now please don't begin the voyage by being shocked mr pathurst such things are very ordinary occurrences you'll get used to them you must remember some queer creatures go down to the sea in ships the man is safe trust mr pike to attend to his wounds i've never sailed with mr pike but i've heard enough about him mr pike is quite a surgeon last voyage they say he performed a successful amputation and so elated was he that he turned his attention on the carpenter who happened to be suffering from some sort of indigestion mr pike was so convinced of the correctness of his diagnosis that he tried to bribe the carpenter into having his appendix removed she broke off to laugh heartily then added they say he offered the poor man just pounds and pounds of tobacco to consent to the operation but is it safe 
for the the working of the ship i urged to take such a lunatic along she shrugged her shoulders as if not intending to reply then said this incident is nothing there are always several lunatics or idiots in every ship's company and they always come aboard filled with whiskey and raving i remember once when we sailed from seattle a long time ago one such madman he showed no signs of madness at all just calmly seized two boarding-house runners and sprang overboard with them we sailed the same day before the bodies were recovered again she shrugged her shoulders what would you the sea is hard mr pathurst and for our sailors we get the worst type of men i sometimes wonder where they find them and we do our best with them and somehow manage to make them help us carry on our work in the world but they are low low as i listened and studied her face contrasting her woman's sensitivity and her soft pretty dress with the brute faces and rags of the men i had noticed i could not help being convinced intellectually of the rightness of her position nevertheless i was hurt sentimentally chiefly i do believe because of the very hardness and unconcern with which she enunciated her view it was because she was a woman and so different from the sea creatures that i resented her having received such harsh education in the school of the sea i could not help remarking your father's er er sang fried during the occurrence i ventured he never took his hands from his pockets she cried her eyes sparkled as i nodded confirmation i knew it it's his way i've seen it so often i remember when i was twelve years old mother was alone we were running into san francisco it was in the dixie a ship almost as big as this there was a strong fair wind blowing and father did not take a tug we sailed right through the golden gate and up the san francisco waterfront there was a swift flood tide too and the men both watches were taking in sail as fast as they could now the fault was the steamboat captain's he miscalculated our speed and tried to cross our bow then came the collision and the dixie's bow cut through the steamboat cabin and hull there were hundreds of passengers men women and children father never took his hands from his pockets he sent the mate forward to supervise rescuing the passengers who were already climbing up to our bowsprit and forecastle head and in a voice no different from what he'd used to ask someone to pass the butter he told the second mate to set all sail and he told him which sails to begin with but why set more sails i interrupted because he could see the situation don't you see the steamboat was cut wide open all that kept her from sinking instantly was the bow of the dixie jammed into her side by setting more sail and keeping before the wind he continued to keep the bow of the dixie jammed i was terribly frightened people who had sprung or fallen overboard were drowning on each side of us right in my sight as we sailed along up the waterfront but when i looked at father there he was just as i had always known him hands in pockets walking slowly up and down now giving an order to the wheel you see he had to direct the dixie's course through all the shipping now watching the passengers swarming over our bow and along our deck now looking ahead to see his way through the ships at anchor 
Sometimes he did glance at the poor, drowning ones, but he was not concerned with them. Of course there were numbers drowned, but by keeping his hands in his pockets and his head cool, he saved hundreds of lives. Not until the last person was off the steamboat, he sent men aboard to make sure, did he take off the press of sail, and the steamboat sank at once. She ceased and looked at me with shining eyes for approbation. It was splendid, I acknowledged. I admire the quiet man of power, though I confess that such quietness under stress seems to me almost unearthly and beyond human. I can't conceive of myself acting that way, and I am confident that I was suffering more while that poor devil was in the water than all the rest of the onlookers put together. Father suffers, she defended loyally, only he does not show it. I bowed, for I felt she had missed my point. End of chapter 4「I came out from tea in the cabin to find the tug Britannia in sight. She was the craft that was to tow us down Chesapeake Bay to sea. Strolling forward, I noted the sailors being routed out of the forecastle by sundry buyers, forever tenderly pressing his abdomen with his hands. Another man was helping sundry buyers at routing out the sailors. I asked Mr. Pike who the man was. Nancy, my bosun, ain't he a peach, was the answer I got, and from the mate's manner of enunciation, I was quite aware that Nancy had been used derisively. Nancy could not have been more than thirty, though he looked as if he had lived a very long time. He was toothless and sad and weary of movement. His eyes were slate-colored and muddy. His shaven face was sickly yellow. Narrow-shouldered, sunken-chested, with cheeks cavernously hollow, he looked like a man in the last stages of consumption. Little life as sundry buyers showed, Nancy showed even less life. And these were bosuns, bosuns of the fine American sailing ship Elsinore. Never had any illusion of mine taken a more distressing cropper. It was plain to me that the pair of them, spineless and spunkless, were afraid of the men they were supposed to boss. And the men, Doré could never have conjured a more delectable hell's broth, for the first time I saw them all, and I could not blame the two bosuns for being afraid of them. They did not walk. They slouched and shambled, some even tottered, as from weakness or drink. But it was their faces. I could not help remembering what Miss West had just told me, that ships always sailed with several lunatics or idiots in their crews. But these looked as if they were all lunatic or feeble-minded and I, too, wondered where such a mass of human wreckage could have been obtained. There was something wrong with all of them. Their bodies were twisted, their faces distorted, and almost without exception they were undersized. The several quite fairly large men I marked were vacant-faced. One man, however, large and unmistakably Irish, was also unmistakably mad. He was talking and muttering to himself as he came out. 
a little curved lopsided man with his head on one side and with the shrewdest and wickedest of faces and pale blue eyes addressed an obscene remark to the mad irishman calling him o'sullivan but o'sullivan took no notice and muttered on on the heels of the little lopsided man appeared an overgrown dolt of a fat youth followed by another youth so tall and emaciated of body that it seemed a marvel his flesh could hold his frame together next after this perambulating skeleton came the weirdest creature i have ever beheld he was a twisted oaf of a man face and body were twisted as with the pain of a thousand years of torture his was the face of an ill-treated and feeble-minded fawn his large black eyes were bright eager and filled with pain and they flashed questioningly from face to face and to everything about they were so pitifully alert those eyes as if forever a strain to catch the clue to some perplexing and threatening enigma not until afterwards did i learn the cause of this he was stone deaf having had his eardrums destroyed in the boiler explosion which had wrecked the rest of him i noticed the steward standing at the galley door and watching the men from a distance his keen asiatic face quick with intelligence was a relief to the eye as was the vivid face of shorty who came out of the forecastle with a leap and a gurgle of laughter but there was something wrong with him too he was a dwarf and as i was to come to know his high spirits and low mentality united to make him a clown mr pike stopped beside me a moment and while he watched the men i watched him the expression on his face was that of a cattle buyer and it was plain that he was disgusted with the quality of cattle delivered something the matter with the last mother's son of them he growled and still they came one pallid furtivide that i instantly adjudged a drug fiend another a tiny wizened old man pinched face and wrinkled with beady malevolent blue eyes a third a small well-fleshed man who seemed to my eye the most normal and least unintelligent specimen that had yet appeared but mr pike's eye was better trained than mine what's the matter with you he snarled at the man nothing sir the fellow answered stopping immediately what's your name mr pike never spoke to a sailor save with a snarl charles davis sir what are you limping about i ain't limping sir the man answered respectfully and at a nod of dismissal from the mate marched off jauntily along the deck with a hoodlum swing to the shoulders he's a sailor all right the mate grumbled but i'll bet you a pound of tobacco or a month's wages there's something wrong with him the forecastle now seemed empty but the mate turned on the bosuns with his customary snarl what in hell are you doing sleeping think this is a rest cure get in there and rustle em out sundry buyers pressed his abdomen gingerly and hesitated while nancy his face one dogged long-suffering bleakness reluctantly entered the forecastle then from inside we heard oaths vile and filthy urgings and expostulations on the part of nancy meekly and pleadingly uttered i noted the grim and savage look that came on mr pike's face and was prepared for i knew not what awful monstrosities to emerge from the forecastle 
Instead, to my surprise, came three fellows who were strikingly superior to the ruck that had preceded them. I looked to see the mate's face soften to some sort of approval. On the contrary, his blue eyes contracted to narrow slits, the snarl of his voice was communicated to his lips, so that he seemed like a dog about to bite. But the three fellows, they were small men, all, and young men, anywhere between twenty-five and thirty. Though roughly dressed, they were well-dressed, and under their clothes their bodily movements showed physical well-being. Their faces were keen-cut, intelligent. And though I felt there was something queer about them, I could not divine what it was. Here were no ill-fed, whiskey-poisoned men, such as the rest of the sailors, who, having drunk up their last paydays, had starved ashore until they received and drunk up their advance money for the present voyage. These three, on the other hand, were supple and vigorous. Their movements were spontaneously quick and accurate. Perhaps it was the way they looked at me, with incurious yet calculating eyes, that nothing escaped. They seemed so worldly wise, so indifferent, so sure of themselves. I was confident they were not sailors. Yet, as shore-dwellers, I could not place them. They were a type I had never encountered. Possibly I can give a better idea of them by describing what occurred. As they passed before us, they favored Mr. Pike with the same indifferent, keen glances they gave me. "'What's your name? You!' Mr. Pike barked at the first of the trio, evidently a hybrid Irish Jew. Jewish his nose unmistakably was. Equally unmistakable was the Irish of his eyes and jaw and upper lip. The three had immediately stopped, and, though they did not look directly at one another, they seemed to be holding a silent conference. Another of the trio, in whose veins ran God alone knows what Semitic, Babylonish, or Latin strains, gave a warning signal. Oh, nothing so crass as a wink or a nod. I almost doubted that I had intercepted it, and yet I knew he had communicated a warning to his fellows. More a shade of expression that had crossed his eyes, or a glint in them of sudden light, or whatever it was, it carried the message. Murphy, the other answered the mate. Sir, Mr. Pike snarled at him. Murphy shrugged his shoulders in token that he did not understand. It was the poise of the man, of the three of them, the cool poise that impressed me. When you address any officer on this ship, you'll say, Sir, Mr. Pike explained. His voice as harsh as his face was forbidding. Did you get that? Yes, sir, Murphy drawled with deliberate slowness. I gotcha. Sir, Mr. Pike roared. Sir, Murphy answered, so softly and carelessly that it irritated the mate to further bully-ragging. Well, Murphy's too long, he announced. Nosey'll do you aboard this craft. Got that? I gotcha, sir came the reply, insolent in its very softness and unconcern. Nosey Murphy goes, sir. And then he laughed. The three of them laughed, if laughter it might be called that was laughter without sound or facial movement. The eyes alone laughed, mirthlessly and cold-bloodedly. Certainly Mr. Pike was not enjoying himself with his baffling personalities. 
he turned upon the leader the one who had given the warning and who looked the admixture of all that was mediterranean and semitic what's your name bert rhine sir was the reply in tones as soft and careless and silkily irritating as the others and you this to the remaining one the youngest of the trio a dark-eyed olive-skinned fellow with a face most striking in its cameo-like beauty american-born i placed him of immigrants from southern italy from naples or even sicily twist sir he answered precisely in the same manner as the others too long the mate sneered the kid'll do you got that i got you sir kid twist'll do me sir kid'll do kid sir and the three laughed their silent mirthless laugh by this time mr pike was beside himself with a rage that could find no excuse for action now i'm going to tell you something the bunch of you for the good of your health the mate's voice grated with the rage he was suppressing i know your kind your dirt do ye get that your dirt and on this ship you'll be treated as dirt you do your work like men or i'll know the reason why the first time one of you bats an eye or even looks like batting an eye he gets his do ye get that now get out get along forward to the windlass mr pike turned on his heel and i swung alongside of him as he moved aft what do you make of them i queried the limit he grunted i know their kidney they've done time the three of them they're just plain sweepings of hell here his speech was broken off by the spectacle that greeted him on number two hatch sprawled out on the hatch were five or six men among them larry the tattered emollion who had called him old stiff earlier in the afternoon that larry had not obeyed orders was patent for he was sitting with his back propped against his sea-bag which ought to have been in the forecastle also he and the group with him ought to have been ford manning the windlass the mate stepped upon the hatch and towered over the man get up he ordered larry made an effort groaned and failed to get up i can't he said sir i can't sir i was drunk last night and slept in jefferson market and this morning i was froze tight sir they had to pry me loose stiff with cold you were eh the mate grinned it's well ye might say it sir larry answered and you feel like an old stiff eh larry blinked with the troubled querulous eyes of a monkey he was beginning to apprehend he knew not what and he knew that bending over him was a man-master well i'll just be showing you what an old stiff feels like anyways mr pike mimicked the other's brogue and now i shall tell what i saw happen please remember what i have said of the huge paws of mr pike the fingers much longer than mine and twice as thick the wrists massive boned the arm bones and the shoulder bones of the same massive order with one flip of his right hand with what i might call an open-handed lifting upward slap save that it was the ends of the fingers only that touched larry's face he lifted larry into the air sprawling him backward on his back across the sea-bag 
The man alongside of Larry emitted a menacing growl and started to spring belligerently to his feet. But he never reached his feet. Mr. Pike, with the back of the same right hand, open, smote the man on the side of the face. The loud smack of the impact was startling. The mate's strength was amazing. The blow looked so easy, so effortless, it had seemed like the lazy stroke of a good-natured bear, but in it was such a weight of bone and muscle that the man went down sideways and rolled off the hatch onto the deck. At this moment, lurching aimlessly along, appeared O'Sullivan. A sudden access of muttering on his part reached Mr. Pike's ear, and Mr. Pike, instantly keen as a wild animal, his paw in the act of striking O'Sullivan, whipped out like a revolver shot, "'What's that?' Then he noted the scent-struck face of O'Sullivan and withheld the blow. "'Bughouse,' Mr. Pike commented." Involuntarily I had glanced to see if Captain West was on the poop, and found that we were hidden from the poop by the midship house. Mr. Pike, taking no notice of the man who lay groaning on the deck, stood over Larry, who was likewise groaning. The rest of the sprawling men were on their feet, subdued and respectful. I, too, was respectful of this terrific, aged figure of a man. The exhibition had quite convinced me of the verity of his earlier driving and killing days. "'Who's the old stiff now?' he demanded. "'Tis me, sir,' Larry moaned contritely. "'Get up.' Larry got up without any difficulty at all. "'Now get forward to the windlass. The rest of you.' And they went, sullenly, shamblingly, like the cowed brutes they were. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 of The Mutiny of the Elsinore This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London Chapter 6 I climbed the ladder on the side of the forward house, which house contained, as I discovered, the forecastle, the galley, and the donkey engine room, and went part way along the bridge to a position by the foremast where i could observe the crew heaving up anchor the britannia was alongside and we were getting under way a considerable body of men was walking around with a windlass or variously engaged on the forecastle head of the crew proper were two watches of fifteen men each in addition were sailmakers boys bosuns and the carpenter Nearly forty men were they, but such men. They were sad and lifeless. There was no vim, no go, no activity. Every step and movement was an effort, as if they were dead men raised out of coffins, or sick men dragged from hospital beds. Sick they were, whiskey poisoned. Starved they were, and weak from poor nutrition. And worst of all, they were imbecile and lunatic. I looked aloft at the intricate ropes, at the steel masts rising and carrying huge yards of steel, rising higher and higher, until steel masts and yards gave way to slender spars of wood, while ropes and stays turned into a delicate tracery of spider thread against the sky. That such a wretched muck of men should be able to work this magnificent ship through all storm and darkness and peril of the sea was beyond all seeming. 
I remembered the two mates, the super-efficiency, mental and physical, of Mr. Mellaire and Mr. Pike. Could they make this human wreckage do it? They, at least, evinced no doubts of their ability. The sea? If this feat of mastery were possible, then clear it was that I knew nothing of the sea. I looked back at the misshapen, starved, sick, stumbling hulks of men who trod the dreary round of the windlass. Mr. Pike was right. These were not the brisk, devilish, able-bodied men who manned the ships of the old clipper-ship days, who fought their officers, who had the points of their sheathed knives broken off, who killed and were killed, but who did their work as men. These men these shambling carcasses at the windlass, I looked and looked, and vainly I strove to conjure the vision of them swinging aloft in rack and storm, clearing the raffle, as Kipling puts it, with their clasped knives in their teeth. Why didn't they sing a chanty as they hove the anchor up? In the old days, as I had read, the anchor always came up to a rollicking sailor song of sea-chested men, I tired of watching the spiritless performance, and went aft on an exploring trip along the slender bridge. It was a beautiful structure, strong yet light, traversing the length of the ship in three aerial leaps. It spanned from the forecastle head to the forecastle house, next to the midship house, and then to the poop. The poop, which was really the roof or deck over all the cabin space below, and which occupied the whole after part of the ship, was very large. It was broken only by the half-round and half-covered wheelhouse at the very stern and by the chart-house. On either side of the latter, two doors opened into a tiny hallway. This in turn gave access to the chart-room and to a stairway that led down into the cabin quarters beneath. I peeped into the chart-room and was greeted with a smile by Captain West. He was lolling back comfortably in a swing-chair, his feet cocked on the desk opposite. On a broad, upholstered couch sat the pilot. Both were smoking cigars, and, lingering for a moment to listen to the conversation, I grasped that the pilot was an ex-sea captain. As I descended the stairs, from Miss West's room came a sound of humming and bustling as she settled her belongings. The energy she displayed, to judge by the cheerful noises of it, was almost perturbing. Passing by the pantry, I put my head inside the door to greet the steward and courteously let him know that I was aware of his existence. Here, in his little realm, it was plain that efficiency reigned. Everything was spotless and in order, and I could have wished and wished vainly for a more noiseless servant than he ashore. His face, as he regarded me, had as little or as much expression as the sphinx, but his slant black eyes were bright with intelligence. "'What do you think of the crew?' I asked, in order to put words to my invasion of his castle. "'Buggy house,' he answered promptly, with a disgusted shake of the head. "'Too much buggy house. All crazy. You see. No good. Rotten. Down to hell.' That was all, but it verified my own judgment. While it might be true, as Miss West had said, that every ship's crew contained several lunatics and idiots, it was a foregone conclusion that our crew contained far more than several. 
in fact and as it was to turn out our crew even in these degenerate sailing days was an unusual crew in so far as its helplessness and worthlessness were beyond the average i found my own room in reality it was two rooms delightful wada had unpacked and stored away my entire outfit of clothing and had filled numerous shelves with the library i had brought along everything was in order and place from my shaving outfit in the drawer beside the wash basin and my sea boots and oilskins hung ready to hand to my writing materials on the desk before which a swing armchair leather upholstered and screwed solidly to the floor invited me my pajamas and dressing-gown were out my slippers in their accustomed place by the bed also invited me here aft all was fitness intelligence on deck it was what i have described a nightmare spawn of creatures assumably human but malformed mentally and physically in the caricatures of men yes it was an unusual crew and that mr pike and mr mellaire could whip it into the efficient shape necessary to work this vast and intricate and beautiful fabric of a ship was beyond all seeming of possibility depressed as i was by what i had just witnessed on deck there came to me as i leaned back in my chair and opened the second volume of george moore's hail and farewell a premonition that the voyage was to be disastrous but then as i looked about the room measured its generous space realized that i was more comfortably situated than i had ever been on any passenger steamer i dismissed foreboding thoughts and caught a pleasant vision of myself through weeks and months catching up with all the necessary reading which i had so long neglected once i asked wada if he had seen the crew no he hadn't but the steward had said that in all his years at sea this was the worst crew he had ever seen he say all crazy no sailors rotten wada said he say all big fools and bime by much trouble you see he say all the time you see you see he pretty old man fifty-five years he say very smart man for china man just now first time for a long time he go to sea before he have big business in san francisco then he get much trouble police they say he opium smuggle oh big big trouble but he catch good lawyer he no go to jail but long time lawyer work and when trouble all finish lawyer got all his business all his money everything then he go to sea like before he make good money he get sixty-five dollars a month on this ship but he don't like crew all crazy when this time finish he leave ship go back start business in san francisco later when i had wada open one of the ports for ventilation i could hear the gurgle and swish of water alongside and i knew the anchor was up and that we were in the grip of the britannia towing down the chesapeake to sea the idea suggested itself that it was not too late i could very easily abandon the adventure and return to baltimore on the britannia when she cast off the elsinore and then i heard a slight tinkling of china from the pantry as the steward proceeded to set the table and also it was so warm and comfortable and george moore was so irritatingly fascinating 
End of chapter 6「Seven of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London. Chapter 7. In every way dinner proved up beyond my expectations, and I registered a note that the cook, whoever or whatever he might be, was a capable man at his trade. Miss West served, and, though she and the steward were strangers, they worked together splendidly. I should have thought, from the smoothness of the service, that he was an old house-servant, who for years had known her every way. The pilot ate in the chart-house, so that at table were the four of us that would always be at table together. Captain West and his daughter faced each other, while I, on the captain's right, faced Mr. Pike. This put Miss West across the corner on my right. Mr. Pike, his dark sack coat, put on for the meal, bulging and wrinkling over the lumps of muscle that padded his stooped shoulders, had nothing at all to say. But he had eaten too many years at captain's tables not to have proper table manners. At first I thought he was abashed by Miss West's presence. Later I decided it was due to the presence of the captain for Captain West had a way with him that I was beginning to learn. Far removed as Mr. Pike and Mr. Mellaire were from the sailors, individuals as they were of an entirely different and superior breed, yet equally as different and far removed from his officers was Captain West. He was a serene and absolute aristocrat. He neither talked ship nor anything else to Mr. Pike. On the other hand, Captain West's attitude towards me was that of a social equal, but then I was a passenger. Miss West treated me the same way, but unbent more to Mr. Pike, and Mr. Pike, answering her with yes, miss, and no, miss, ate good-manneredly, and with his shaggy-browed gray eyes studied me across the table. I, too, studied him. Despite his violent past, killer and driver that he was, I could not help liking the man. He was honest, genuine. Almost more than for that, I liked him for the spontaneous, boyish laugh he gave on the occasions when I reached the points of several funny stories. No man could laugh like that and be all bad. I was glad that it was he, and not Mr. Mallaire, who was to sit opposite throughout the voyage and I was very glad that Mr. Mallaire was not to eat with us at all. I am afraid that Miss West and I did most of the talking. She was breezy, vivacious, tonic, and I noted again that the delicate, almost fragile oval of her face was given the lie by her body. She was a robust, healthy young woman. That was undeniable. Not fat, heaven forbid, not even plump, Yet her lines had that swelling roundness that accompanies long, live muscles. She was full-bodied, vigorous, and yet not so full-bodied as she seemed. I remember with what surprise, when we arose from table, I noted her slender waist. At that moment I got the impression that she was willowy. And willowy she was, with a normal waist and with in addition always that informing bodily vigour that made her appear rounder and robuster than she really was 
It was the health of her that interested me. When I studied her face more closely, I saw that only the lines of the oval of it were delicate. Delicate it was not, nor fragile. The flesh was firm, and the texture of the skin was firm and fine as it moved over the firm muscles of face and neck. The neck was a beautiful and adequate pillar of white. Its flesh was firm, its skin fine, and it was muscular. The hands, too, attracted me, not small, but well-shaped, fine, white and strong, and well cared for. I could only conclude that she was an unusual captain's daughter, just as her father was an unusual captain and man. And their noses were alike, just the hint-touch of the beak of power and race. While Miss West was telling of the unexpectedness of the voyage, of how suddenly she had decided to come, she accounted for it as a whim, and while she told of all the complications she had encountered in her haste of preparation, I found myself casting up a tally of the efficient ones on board the Elsinore. They were Captain West and his daughter, the two mates, myself, of course, Wada and the steward, and beyond the shadow of a doubt the cook, the dinner vouched for him. Thus I found our total of efficients to be eight. But the cook, the steward, and Wada were servants, not sailors, while Miss West and myself were supernumeraries. Remained to work, direct, do, but three efficients out of a total ship's company of forty-five. I had no doubt that other efficients there were. It seemed impossible that my first impression of the crew should be correct. There was the carpenter. He might, at his trade, be as good as the cook. Then the two sailmakers, whom I had not yet seen, might prove up. A little later during the meal I ventured to talk about what had interested me, and aroused my admiration, namely the masterfulness with which Mr. Pike and Mr. Mallaire had gripped hold of that woeful, worthless crew. It was all new to me, I explained, but I appreciated the need of it. As I led up to the occurrence on number two hatch, when Mr. Pike had lifted up Larry and toppled him back with a mere slap from the ends of his fingers, I saw in Mr. Pike's eyes a warning, almost threatening expression. Nevertheless, I completed my description of the episode. When I had quite finished, there was a silence. Miss West was busy serving coffee from a copper percolator. Mr. Pike, profoundly occupied with cracking walnuts, could not quite hide the wicked, little, half-humorous, half-revengeful gleam in his eyes. But Captain West looked straight at me, but from, oh, such a distance, millions and millions of miles away. His clear blue eyes were as serene as ever, his tones as low and soft. There is one rule I ask to be observed, Mr. Pathurst. We never discuss the sailors. It was a facer to me, and with quite a pronounced fellow-feeling for Larry, I hurriedly added, It was not merely the discipline that interested me. It was the feat of strength. Sailors are trouble enough without our hearing about them, Mr. Pathurst, Captain West went on as evenly and imperturbably as if I had not spoken. I leave the handling of the sailors to my officers. That's their business, and they are quite aware that I tolerate no undeserved roughness or severity. Mr. Pike's harsh face carried the faintest shadow of an amused grin as he stolidly regarded the tablecloth. 
I glanced to Miss West for sympathy. She laughed frankly and said, You see, father never has any sailors. And it's a good plan, too. A very good plan, Mr. Pike muttered. Then Miss West kindly led the talk away from that subject, and soon had us laughing with a spirited recital of a recent encounter of hers with a Boston cab driver. Dinner over, I stepped to my room in quest of cigarettes, and incidentally asked Wada about the cook. Wada was always a great gatherer of information. His name Lewis, he said. He Chinaman, too. No, only half Chinaman. Other half Englishman. You know one island Napoleon he stop long time and by and by die that island? St. Helena, I prompted. Yes, that place Lewis he born. He talk very good English. At this moment, entering the hall from the deck, Mr. Mallaire, just relieved by the mate, passed me on his way to the big room in the stern where the second table was set. His good evening, sir was as stately and courteous as any southern gentleman of the old days could have uttered it, and yet I could not like the man. His outward seeming was so at variance with the personality that resided within. Even as he spoke and smiled, I felt that from inside his skull he was watching me, studying me. And somehow, in a flash of intuition, I knew not why, I was reminded of the three strange young men routed last from the forecastle, to whom Mr. Pike had read the law. They, too, had given me a similar impression. Behind Mr. Mallaire slouched a self-conscious, embarrassed individual, with the face of a stupid boy and the body of a giant. His feet were even larger than Mr. Pike's, but the hands, I shot a quick glance to see, were not so large as Mr. Pike's. As they passed, I looked inquiry to Wada. He carpenter. He sat second table. His name San Lavrov. He come from New York on ship. Stewart say he very young for carpenter, maybe twenty-two, three years old. As I approached the open port over my desk, I again heard the swish and gurgle of water, and again realized that we were under way. So steady and noiseless was our progress that, say seated at table, it never entered one's head that we were moving or were anywhere save on solid land. I had been used to steamers all my life, and it was difficult immediately to adjust myself to the absence of the propeller thrust vibration. Well, what do you think? I asked Wada, who, like myself, had never made a sailing ship voyage. He smiled politely. Very funny ship, very funny sailors. I don't know. Maybe all right. We see. You think trouble? I asked pointedly. I think sailors very funny, he evaded. End of chapter 7、Elsinore. Having lighted my cigarette, I strolled forward along the deck to where work was going on. Above my head, dim shapes of canvas showed in the starlight. Sail was being made, and being made slowly, as I might judge, who was only the veriest tyro in such matters. The indistinguishable shapes of men in long lines pulled on ropes. They pulled in sick and dogged silence. 
though mr pike ubiquitous snarled out orders and rapped out oaths from every angle upon their miserable heads certainly from what i had read no ship of the old days ever proceeded so sadly and blunderingly to sea ere long mr mellaire joined mr pike in the struggle of directing the men it was not yet eight in the evening and all hands were at work they did not seem to know the ropes time and again when the half-hearted suggestions of the boatswains had been of no avail i saw one or the other of the mates leap to the rail and put the right rope in the hands of the men these on the deck i concluded were the hopeless ones up aloft from sounds and cries i knew were other men undoubtedly those that were at least a little seamanlike loosing the sails but on deck twenty or thirty of the poor devils tailed on a rope that hoisted a yard would pull without concerted effort and with painfully slow movements walk away with it mr pike would yell and perhaps for two or three yards they would manage to walk with the rope ere they came to a halt like stalled horses on a hill and yet did either of the mates spring in and add his strength they were able to move right along the deck without stopping either of the mates old men that they were were muscularly worth half a dozen of the wretched creatures this is what sailing's come to mr pike paused to snort in my ear this ain't the place for an officer down here pulling and hauling but what can you do when the bosuns are worse than the men i thought sailors sang songs when they pulled i said sure they do want to hear em i knew there was malice of some sort in his voice but i answered that i'd like to very much here you bosun mr pike snarled wake up start a song topsail halyards in the pause that followed i could have sworn that sundry byers was pressing his hands against his abdomen while nancy infinite bleakness freezing upon his face was wetting his lips to begin nancy it was who began for from no other man i was confident could have issued so sepulchral a plaint it was unmusical unbeautiful unlively and indescribably doleful yet the words showed that it should have ripped and crackled with high spirits and lawlessness for the words poor nancy sang were away way way yar we'll kill paddy doyle for bus boots quit it quit it mr pike roared this ain't a funeral ain't there one of you that can sing come on now it's a topsail yard he broke off to leap into the pin-rail and get the wrong rope out of the men's hands to put into them the right rope come on bosun break her out then out of the gloom arose sundry byers voice cracked and crazy and even more lugubrious than nancy's then up aloft that yard may go whiskey for my johnny the second line was supposed to be the chorus but not more than two men feebly mumbled it sundry buyers quavered the next line oh whiskey killed my sister sue then mr pike took a hand seizing the hauling part next to the pin and lifting his voice with a rare snap and devilishness and whiskey killed the old man too whiskey for my johnny he sang the devil may care lines on and on lifting the crew to the work and to the chorus emphasis of whiskey for my johnny 
and to his voice they pulled, they moved, they sang and were alive, until he interrupted the song to cry, Belay! And then all the life and lilt went out of them, and they were again maundering and futile things, getting in one another's way, stumbling and shuffling through the darkness, hesitating to grasp ropes, and, when they did take hold, invariably taking hold to the wrong rope first. Skulkers there were among them, too, and once, from forward of the midship house, I heard smacks and curses and groans, and out of the darkness hurriedly emerged two men, on their heels Mr. Pike, who chanted a recital of the distressing things that would befall them if he caught them at such tricks again. The whole thing was too depressing for me to care to watch further, so I strolled aft and climbed the poop. In the lee of the chart-house, Captain West and the pilot were pacing slowly up and down. Passing on aft, I saw steering at the wheel the weazened little old man I had noted earlier in the day. In the light of the binnacle, his small blue eyes looked more malevolent than ever. So weazened and tiny was he, and so large was the brass-studded wheel, that they seemed of a height. His face was withered, scorched, and wrinkled, and in all seeming he was fifty years older than Mr. Pike. He was the most remarkable figure of a burned-out, aged man one would expect to find able seamen on one of the proudest sailing ships afloat. Later, through Wada, I was to learn that his name was Andy Fay, and that he claimed no more years than sixty-three. I leaned against the rail in the lee of the wheelhouse, and stared up at the lofty spars and midred ropes that I could guess were there. No, I decided I was not keen on the voyage. The whole atmosphere of it was wrong. There were the cold hours I had waited on the pier ends. There was Miss West coming along. There was the crew of broken men and lunatics. I wondered if the wounded Greek in the midship house still gibbered, and if Mr. Pike had yet sewed him up, and I was quite sure I would not care to witness such a transaction in surgery. Even Wada, who had never been in a sailing ship, had his doubts of the voyage. So had the steward, who had spent most of a lifetime in sailing ships. So far as Captain West was concerned, crews did not exist. And as for Miss West, she was so abominably robust that she could not be anything else than an optimist in such matters. She had always lived, her red blood sang to her only that she would always live, and that nothing evil would ever happen to her glorious personality. Oh, trust me, I knew the way of red blood. Such was my condition that the red blood health of Miss West was virtually an affront to me for I knew how unthinking and immoderate such blood could be. And for five months at least, there was Mr. Pike's offered wager of a pound of tobacco or a month's wages to that effect. I was to be pent on the same ship with her. As sure as cosmic sap was cosmic sap, just that sure was I that ere the voyage was over, I should be pestered by her making love to me. Please do not mistake me. My certainty in this matter was due not to any exalted sense of my own desirableness to women, but to my anything but exalted concept of women as instinctive huntresses of men. In my experience, women hunted men with quite the same blind tropism that marks the pursuit of the sun by the sunflower, the pursuit of attachable surfaces by the tendrils of the grapevine. 
Call me blasé, I do not mind, if by blasé is meant the world weariness, intellectual, artistic, sensational, which can come to a young man of thirty. For I was thirty, and I was weary of all these things, weary and in doubt. It was because of this state that I was undertaking the voyage. I wanted to get away by myself, to get away from all these things, and, with proper perspective, mull the matter over. It sometimes seemed to me that the culmination of this world-sickness had been brought about by the success of my play, my first play, as everyone knows. But it had been such a success that it raised the doubt in my own mind, just as the success of my several volumes of verse had raised doubt. Was the public right? Were the critics right? Surely the function of the artist was to voice life, yet what did I know of life? So you begin to glimpse what I meant by the world-sickness that afflicted me. Really, I had been, and was, very sick. Mad thoughts of isolating myself entirely from the world had hounded me. I had even canvassed the idea of going to Molokai and devoting the rest of my years to the lepers. I, who was thirty years old, and healthy, and strong, who had no particular tragedy, who had a bigger income than I knew how to spend, who by my own achievement had put my name on the lips of men and proved myself a power to be reckoned with, I was that mad that I had considered the laser house for a destiny. Perhaps it will be suggested that success had turned my head. Very well. Granted. But the turned head remains a fact, an incontrovertible fact, my sickness, if you will, and a real sickness, and a fact. This I knew. I had reached an intellectual and artistic climacteric, a life climacteric of some sort. And I had diagnosed my own case and prescribed this voyage. And here was the atrociously healthy and profoundly feminine Miss West along, the very last ingredient I would have considered introducing into my prescription. A woman! Woman! Heaven knows I had been sufficiently tormented by their persecutions to know them. I leave it to you, thirty years of age, not entirely unhandsome, an intellectual and artistic place in the world, and an income most dazzling, why shouldn't women pursue me? They would have pursued me had I been a hunchback for the sake of my artistic place alone, for the sake of my income alone. Yes, and love. Did I not know love, lyric, passionate, mad, romantic love? That, too, was of old time with me. I, too, had throbbed and sung and sobbed and sighed, yes, and known grief and buried my dead. But it was so long ago, how young I was, turned twenty-four. And after that I had learned the bitter lesson that even deathless grief may die, and I had laughed again and done my share of philandering with the pretty, ferocious moths that fluttered around the light of my fortune and artistry, and after that, in turn, I had retired disgusted from the lists of women, and had gone on long, lance-breaking adventures in the realm of mind. And here I was, on board the Elsinore, unhorsed by my encounters with the problems of the ultimate, carried off the field with a broken pate. As I leaned against the rail, dismissing premonitions of disaster, I could not help thinking of Miss West below, bustling and humming as she made her little nest. 
and from her my thoughts drifted on to the everlasting mystery of woman yes i with all the futuristic contempt for woman am ever caught up afresh by the mystery of woman oh no illusions thank you woman the love-seeker obsessing and possessing fragile and fierce soft and venomous prouder than lucifer and as prideless holds a perpetual almost morbid attraction for the thinker what is this flame of her blazing through all her contradictions and ignobilities this ruthless passion for life always for life more life on the planet at times it seems to me brazen and awful and soulless at times i am made petulant by it and at other times i am swayed by the sublimity of it no there is no escape from woman always as a savage returns to a dark glen where goblins are and gods may be so do i return to the contemplation of woman mr pike's voice interrupted my musings from forward on the main deck i heard him snarl on the main topsail yard there if you cut that gasket i'll split your damned skull again he called with a marked change of voice and the henry he called to i concluded was the training-ship boy you henry main skysail yard there he cried don't make those gaskets up fetch em along in the yard and make fast to the tie thus routed from my reverie i decided to go below to bed as my hand went out to the knob of the chart-house door again the mate's voice rang out come on you gentlemen sons in disguise wake up lively now end of chapter eight chapter nine of the mutiny of the elsinore this librivox recording is in the public domain the mutiny of the elsinore by jack london chapter nine i did not sleep well to begin with i read late not till two in the morning did i reach up and turn out the kerosene reading lamp which wada had purchased and installed for me i was asleep immediately perfect sleep being perhaps my greatest gift but almost immediately i was awake again and thereafter with dozings and catnaps and restless tossings i struggled to win to sleep then gave it up for of all things in my state of jangled nerves to be afflicted with hives and still again to be afflicted with hives in cold winter weather at four i lighted up and went to reading forgetting my irritated skin in vernon lee's delightful screed against william james and as well to believe i was on the weather side of the ship and from overhead through the deck came the steady footfalls of some officer on watch i knew that they were not the steps of mr pike and wondered whether they were mr mellaire's or the pilot's somebody above there was awake the work was going on the vigilant seeing and overseeing that i could plainly conclude would go on through every hour of all the hours on the voyage at half-past four i heard the steward's alarm go off instantly suppressed and five minutes later i lifted my hand to motion him in through my open door what i desired was a cup of coffee and wada had been with me through too many years for me to doubt that he had given the steward precise instructions and turned over to him my coffee and my coffee-making apparatus the steward was a jewel in ten minutes he served me with a perfect cup of coffee 
I read on until daylight, and half-past eight found me, breakfast and bed finished, dressed and shaved, and on deck. We were still towing, but all sails were set to a light favoring breeze from the north. In the chart-room Captain West and the pilot were smoking cigars. At the wheel I noted what I decided at once was an efficient. He was not a large man, if anything he was undersized. But his countenance was broad-browed and intelligently formed. Tom, I later learned, was his name, Tom Spink, an Englishman. He was blue-eyed, fair-skinned, well-grizzled, and, to the eye, a hale fifty years of age. His reply of, "'Good morning, sir,' was cheery, and he smiled as he uttered the simple phrase. He did not look sailor-like, as did Henry, the training-ship boy, and yet I felt at once that he was a sailor, and an able one. It was Mr. Pike's watch, and on asking him about Tom, he grudgingly admitted that the man was the best of the boiling. Miss West emerged from the chart-house, with a rosy morning face, and her vital, springy limb-movement, and immediately began establishing her contacts. On asking how I had slept, and when I said wretchedly, she demanded an explanation. I told her of my affliction of hives and showed her the lumps on my wrists. "'Your blood needs thinning and cooling,' she adjudged promptly. "'Wait a minute. I'll see what can be done for you.' And with that she was away and below and back in a trice, in her hand a part glass of water into which she stirred a teaspoonful of cream of tartar. "'Drink it,' she ordered, as a matter of course. I drank it, and at eleven in the morning she came up to my deck-chair with a second dose of the stuff. Also she reproached me soundly for permitting Wada to feed meat to Possum. It was from her that Wada and I learned how mortal a sin it was to give meat to a young puppy. Furthermore, she laid down the law and the diet for Possum, not alone to me and Wada, but to the steward, the carpenter, and Mr. Mallaire. Of the latter two, because they ate by themselves in the big after-room, and because Possum played there, she was especially suspicious, and she was outspoken in voicing her suspicions to their faces. The carpenter mumbled embarrassed asseverations in broken English of past, present, and future innocence, the while he humbly scraped and shuffled before her on his huge feet. Mr. Mallaire's protestations were of the same nature, save that they were made with the grace and suavity of a Chesterfield. In short, Possum's diet raised quite a tempest in the Elsinore teapot, and by the time it was over, Miss West had established this particular contact with me, and given me a feeling that we were the mutual owners of the puppy. I noticed later in the day that it was to Miss West that Wada went for instructions as to the quantity of warm water he must use to dilute Possum's condensed milk. Lunch won my continued approbation of the cook. In the afternoon I made a trip forward to the galley to make his acquaintance. To all intents he was a Chinese, until he spoke, whereupon, measured by his speech alone, he was an Englishman. In fact, so cultured was his speech that I can fairly say it was vested with an Oxford accent. He, too, was old, fully sixty. He acknowledged fifty-nine. Three things about him were markedly conspicuous. 
his smile that embraced all his clean-shaven asiatic face and asiatic eyes his even road white and perfect teeth which i deemed false until wada ascertained otherwise for me and his hands and feet it was his hands ridiculously small and beautifully modelled that led my scrutiny to his feet they too were ridiculously small and very neatly almost dandifiedly shod we had put the pilot off at midday but the britannia towed us well into the afternoon and did not cast us off until the ocean was wide about us and the land a faint blur on the western horizon here at the moment of leaving the tug we made our departure that is to say technically began the voyage despite the fact that we had already travelled a full twenty-four hours away from baltimore it was about the time of casting off when i was leaning on the poop rail gazing forward when miss west joined me she had been busy below all day and had just come up as she put it for a breath of air she surveyed the sky in weatherwise fashion for a full five minutes then remarked the barometer's very high thirty point sixty this light north wind won't last it will either go into a calm or work around into a northeast gale which would you prefer i asked the gale by all means it will help us off the land and it will put me through my torment of seasickness more quickly oh yes she added i'm a good sailor but i do suffer dreadfully at the beginning of every voyage you probably won't see me for a couple of days now that's why i've been so busy getting settled first lord nelson i have read never got over his squeamishness at sea i said and i've seen father seasick on occasion she answered yes and some of the strongest hardest sailors i have ever known mr pike here joined us for a moment ceasing from his everlasting pacing up and down to lean with us on the poop rail many of the crew were in evidence pulling on ropes on the main deck below us to my inexperienced eye they appeared more unprepossessing than ever a pretty scraggly crew mr pike miss west remarked the worst ever he growled and i've seen some pretty bad ones we're teaching em the ropes just now most of em they look starved i commented they are they almost always are miss west answered and her eyes roved over them in the same appraising cattle buyers fashion i had marked in mr pike but they'll fatten up with regular hours no whiskey and solid food won't they mr pike oh sure they always do and you'll see them liven up when we get them in hand maybe they're a measly lot though i looked aloft at the vast towers of canvas our four masts seemed to have flowered into all the sails possible yet the sailors beneath us under mr mallaire's direction were setting triangular sails like jibs between the masts and there were so many that they overlapped one another the slowness and clumsiness with which the men handled these small sails led me to ask but what would you do mr pike with a green crew like this if you were caught right now in the storm with all this canvas spread he shrugged his shoulders as if i had asked what he would do in an earthquake with two rows of new york skyscrapers falling on his head from both sides of the street do miss west answered for him we'd get the sail off oh it could be done mr pathurst with any kind of crew if it couldn't i should have been drowned long ago 
Sure, Mr. Pike upheld her. So would I. The officers can perform miracles with the most worthless sailors, in a pinch, Miss West went on. Again Mr. Pike nodded his head and agreed, and I noted his two big paws, relaxed the moment before and drooping over the rail, quite unconsciously tensed and folded themselves into fists. Also I noted fresh abrasions on the knuckles. Miss West laughed heartily, as from some recollection. I remember one time when we sailed from San Francisco with a most hopeless crew. It was in the Lila Rock. You remember her, Mr. Pike? Your father's fifth command, he nodded. Lost on the west coast afterwards, went ashore in that big earthquake and tidal wave. Parted her anchors, and when she hit under the cliff, the cliff fell on her. That's the ship. Well... Our crew seemed mostly cowboys and bricklayers and tramps, and more tramps than anything else. Where the boarding-house masters got them was beyond imagining. A number of them were shanghaied, that was certain. You should have seen them when they were first sent aloft. Again she laughed. It was better than circus clowns, and scarcely had the tug cast us off, outside the heads, when it began to blow up and we began to shorten down and then our mates performed miracles. You remember Mr. Harding, Silas Harding? Don't I, though, Mr. Pike proclaimed enthusiastically. He was some man, and he must have been an old man even then. He was, and a terrible man, she concurred, and added almost reverently, and a wonderful man. She turned her face to me. He was our mate. The men were seasick and miserable and green. But Mr. Harding got sail off the Lila Rock just the same. What I wanted to tell you was this. I was on the poop, just like I am now, and Mr. Harding had a lot of those miserable sick men putting gaskets on the main lower topsail. How far would that be above the deck, Mr. Pike? Let me see, the Lila Rook. Mr. Pike paused to consider. Oh, say around a hundred feet. I saw it myself, one of the green hands, a tramp, and he must already have got a taste of Mr. Harding, fell off the lower topsail yard. I was only a little girl, but it looked like certain death, for he was falling from the weather side of the yard straight down on deck, but he fell into the belly of the mainsail, breaking his fall, turned a somersault, and landed on his feet on deck and unhurt and he landed right aside of Mr. Harding facing him. I don't know which was the more astonished, but I think Mr. Harding was, for he stood there petrified. He had expected the man to be killed. Not so the man. He took one look at Mr. Harding, then made a wild jump for the rigging, and climbed right back up to that topsail yard. Miss West and the mate laughed so heartily that they scarcely heard me say, Astonishing! Think of the jar to the man's nerve, falling to apparent death that way. He'd been jarred harder by Silas Harding, I guess, was Mr. Pike's remark, with another burst of laughter in which Miss West joined. Which was all very well, in a way. Ships were ships, and judging from what I had seen of our present crew, harsh treatment was necessary. But that a young woman of the niceness of Miss West should know of such things— and be so saturated in this side of ship life was not nice. It was not nice for me, though it interested me, I confess, and strengthened my grip on reality. 
yet it meant a hardening of one's fibres and i did not like to think of miss west being so hardened i looked at her and could not help marking again the fineness and firmness of her skin her hair was dark as were her eyebrows which were almost straight and rather low over her long eyes gray her eyes were a warm gray and very steady and direct in expression intelligent and alive perhaps taking her face as a whole the most noteworthy expression of it was a great calm she seemed always in repose at peace with herself and with the external world the most beautiful feature were her eyes framed in lashes as dark as her brows and hair the most admirable feature was her nose quite straight very straight and just the slightest trifle too long in this it was reminiscent of her father's nose but the perfect modelling of the bridge and nostrils conveyed an indescribable advertisement of race and blood hers was a slender-lipped sensitive sensible and generous mouth generous not so much in size which was quite average but generous rather in tolerance in power and in laughter all the health and buoyancy of her was in her mouth as well as in her eyes she rarely exposed her teeth in smiling for which purpose she seemed chiefly to employ her eyes but when she laughed she showed strong white teeth even not babyish in their smallness but just the firm sensible normal size one would expect in a woman as healthy and normal as she i would never have called her beautiful and yet she possessed many of the factors that go to compose feminine beauty she had all the beauty of colouring a white skin that was healthy white and that was emphasized by the darkness of her lashes brows and hair and in the same way the darkness of lashes and brows and the whiteness of skin set off the warm grey of her eyes the forehead was well medium broad and medium high and quite smooth no lines or hints of lines were there suggestive of nervousness of blue days of depression and white nights of insomnia oh she bore all the marks of a healthy human female who never worried nor was vexed in the spirit of her and in whose body every process and function was frictionless and automatic miss west is posed to me as quite a weather prophet i said to the mate now what is your forecast of our coming weather she ought to be was mr pike's reply as he lifted his glance across the smooth swell of sea to the sky this ain't the first time she's been on the north atlantic in winter he debated a moment as he studied the sea and sky i should say considering the high barometer we ought to get a mild gale from the northeast or a calm with the chances in favour of the calm she favoured me with a triumphant smile and suddenly clutched the rail as the elsinore lifted on an unusually large swell and sank into the trough with a roll from windward that flapped all the sails in hall of thunder the calm has it miss west said with just a hint of grimness and if this keeps up i'll be in my bunk in about five minutes she waved aside all sympathy oh don't bother about me mr pathurst seasickness is only detestable and horrid like sleet and muddy weather and poison ivy besides i'd rather be seasick than have the hives 
Something went wrong with the men below us on the deck, some stupidity or blunder that was made aware to us by Mr. Mellor's raised voice. Like Mr. Pike, he had a way of snarling at the sailors that was distinctly unpleasant to the ear. On the faces of several of the sailors, bruises were in evidence. One, in particular, had an eye so swollen that it was closed. Looks as if he had run against a stanchion in the dark, I observed. Most eloquent and most unconscious was a quick flash of Miss West's eyes to Mr. Pike's big paws, with freshly abraded knuckles resting on the rail. It was a stab of hurt to me. She knew. End of chapter 9「Supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption and logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com/insights. Chapter 10 of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London, Chapter 10. That evening the three men of us had dinner alone with racks on the table, while the Elsinore rolled in the calm that had sent Miss West to her room. "'You won't see her for a couple of days,' Captain West told me. Her mother was the same way, a born sailor, but always sick at the outset of a voyage. "'It's the shaking down. Mr. Pike astonished me with the longest observation I had yet heard him utter at table. "'Everybody has to shake down when they leave the land.' We've got to forget the good times on shore, and the good things money'll buy, and start watch and watch, four hours on deck and four below. And it comes hard, and all our tempers are strung until we can make the change. Did it happen that you heard Caruso and Blanche Aral this winter in New York, Mr. Pathurst? I nodded, still marveling over this spate of speech at table. Well, think of hearing them— and homer and witherspoon and a motto every night for nights and nights at the metropolitan and then to give it the go-by and get to sea and shake down to watch and watch you don't like the sea i queried he sighed i don't know but of course the sea is all i know except music i threw in yes but the sea and all the long voyaging has cheated me out of most of the music i ought to have had coming to me i suppose you've heard schumann hank wonderful wonderful he murmured fervently then regarded me with an eager wistfulness i've half a dozen of her records and i've got the second dog watch below if captain west don't mind captain west nodded that he didn't mind and if you'd want to hear them the machine is a good one and then to my amazement when the steward had cleared the table this hoary old relic of man-killing and man-driving days battered waif of the sea that he was carried in from his room a most splendid collection of phonograph records these and the machine he placed on the table the big doors were opened making the dining-room and the main cabin into one large room 
It was in the cabin that Captain West and I lolled in big leather chairs, while Mr. Pike ran the phonograph. His face was in a blaze of light from the swinging lamps, and every shade of expression was visible to me. In vain I waited for him to start some popular song. His records were only of the best, and the care he took of them was a revelation. He handled each one reverently, as a sacred thing, untying and unwrapping it, and brushing it with a fine camel's hair brush while it revolved and airy placed the needle on it. For a time all I could see was the huge brute hands of a brute driver, with skin off the knuckles, that expressed love in their every movement. Each touch on the discs was a caress, and while the record played, he hovered over it and dreamed in some heaven of music all his own. During this time Captain West lay back and smoked a cigar. His face was expressionless, and he seemed very far away, untouched by the music. I almost doubted that he heard it. He made no remark between whiles, betrayed no sign of approbation or displeasure. He seemed preternaturally serene, preternaturally remote. And while I watched him, I wondered what his duties were. I had not seen him perform any. Mr. Pike had attended to the loading of the ship. Not until she was ready for sea had Captain West come on board. I had not seen him give an order. It looked to me that Mr. Pike and Mr. Mallaire did the work. All Captain West did was smoke cigars and keep blissfully oblivious of the Elsinore's crew. When Mr. Pike had played the Hallelujah Chorus from the Messiah, and He Shall Feed His Flock, he mentioned to me, almost apologetically, that he liked sacred music, and for the reason, perhaps, that for a short period, a child ashore in San Francisco, he had been a choir boy. And then I hit the dominie over the head with a baseball bat and sneaked off to sea again, he concluded with a harsh laugh. And thereat he fell to dreaming while he played Meyerbeer's King of Heaven and Mendelssohn's O Rest in the Lord. When one bell struck, at quarter to eight, he carried his music, all carefully wrapped, back into his room. I lingered with him while he rolled a cigarette ere eight bells struck. I've got a lot more good things, he said confidentially. Cohen's Come On To Me, and Fowers Crucifix, and there's O Solarius, and Lead Kindly Light by the Trinity Choir, and Jesu, Lover of My Soul, would just melt your heart. I'll play em for you some night. Do you believe in them? I was led to ask by his rapt expression and by the picture of his brute-driving hands, which I could not shake from my consciousness. He hesitated perceptibly, then replied, I do, when I'm listening to them. My sleep that night was wretched. Short of sleep from the previous night, I closed my book and turned my light off early. But scarcely had I dropped into slumber when I was aroused by the recrudescence of my hives. All day they had not bothered me, yet the instant I put out the light and slept, the damnable persistent itching set up. Wada had not yet gone to bed, and from him I got more cream of tartar. It was useless, however, and at midnight, when I heard the watch changing, I partially dressed, slipped into my dressing gown, and went up onto the poop. I saw Mr. Mallaire beginning his four hours' watch, pacing up and down the port side of the poop, 
and I slipped away aft, past the man at the wheel, whom I did not recognize, and took refuge in the lee of the wheelhouse. Once again I studied the dim loom and tracery of intricate rigging and lofty, sail-carrying spars, thought of the mad imbecile crew, and experienced premonitions of disaster. How could such a voyage be possible, with such a crew, on the huge Elsinore, a cargo carrier that was only a steel shell half an inch thick, burdened with five thousand tons of coal? It was appalling to contemplate. The voyage had gone wrong from the first. In the wretched unbalance that loss of sleep brings to any good sleeper, I could decide only that the voyage was doomed. Yet how doomed it was, in truth, neither I nor a madman could have dreamed. I thought of the red-blooded Miss West, who had always lived and had no doubts but what she would always live. I thought of the killing and driving and music-loving Mr. Pike, many a hailer remnant than he had gone down on a last voyage as for captain west he did not count he was too neutral a being too far away a sort of favoured passenger who had nothing to do but serenely and passively exist in some nirvana of his own creating next i remembered the self-wounded greek sewed up by mr pike and lying gibbering between the steel walls of the midship house this picture almost decided me, for in my fevered imagination he typified the whole mad, helpless, idiotic crew. Certainly I could go back to Baltimore. Thank God I had the money to humor my whims. Had not Mr. Pike told me, in reply to a question, that he estimated the running and expenses of the Elsinore at two hundred dollars a day, I could afford to pay two hundred a day, or two thousand for the several days that it might be necessary to get me back to land to a pilot tug or any inbound craft to baltimore i was quite wholly of a mind to go down and rout out captain west to tell him my decision when another presented itself then are you the thinker and philosopher the world-sick one afraid to go down to cease in the darkness bah my own pride and my life pridelessness saved captain west's sleep from interruption of course i would go on with the adventure if adventure it might be called to go sailing around cape horn with a shipload of fools and lunatics and worse for i remembered the three babylonish and semitic ones who had aroused mr pike's ire and who had laughed so terribly and silently night thoughts sleepless thoughts I dismissed them all and started below, chilled through by the cold. But at the chart-room door I encountered Mr. Mellaire. A pleasant evening, sir, he greeted me. A pity there's not a little wind to help us off the land. What do you think of the crew? I asked after a moment or so. Mr. Mellaire shrugged his shoulders. I've seen many queer crews in my time, Mr. Pathurst, but I never saw one as queer as this boys old men cripples and you saw tony the greek go overboard yesterday well that's only the beginning he's a sample i've got a big irishman in my watch who's going bad did you notice a little dried-up scotchman who looks mean and angry all the time and who was steering the evening before last the very one andy fay well andy fay has just been complaining to me about o'sullivan 
says O'Sullivan's threatened his life. When Andy Fay went off watch at eight, he found O'Sullivan's dropping a razor. I'll give you the conversation as Andy gave it to me. Says O'Sullivan to me, Mr. Fay, I'll have a word with ye. Certainly, says I. What can I do for you? Sell me your sea boots, Mr. Fay, says O'Sullivan, polite as can be. But what will you be wantin' of them, says I. Twill be a great favor, says O'Sullivan. But it's my only pair, says I, and you have a pair of your own, says I. Mr. Fay, I'll be needin' me own in bad weather, says O'Sullivan. Besides, says I, you have no money. I'll pay you for them when we pay off in Seattle, says O'Sullivan. I'll not do it, says I. Besides, you're not tellin' me what you'll be doin' with them. But I will tell you, says O'Sullivan. I'm wantin' to throw em over the side. And with that I turns to walk away, but O'Sullivan says very polite and seducin'-like, still a stroppin' the razor. Mr. Fay, says he, will you kindly step this way and have your throat cut? And with that I knew my life was in danger, and I have come to make report to you, sir, that the man is a violent lunatic. Or soon will be, I remarked. I noticed him yesterday, a big man muttering continually to himself. That's the man, Mr. Mallair said. Do you have many such at sea? I asked. More than my share, I do believe, sir. He was lighting a cigarette at the moment, and with a quick movement he pulled off his cap, bent his head forward, and held up the blazing match that I might see. I saw a grizzled head, the full crown of which was not entirely bald, but partially covered with a few sparse long hairs, and full across this crown, disappearing in the thicker fringe above the ears, ran the most prodigious scar I had ever seen. Because the vision of it was so fleeting, ere the match blew out, and because of the scar's very prodigiousness, I may possibly exaggerate, but I could have sworn that I could lay two fingers deep into the horrid cleft, and that it was fully two fingers broad. There seemed no bone at all, just a great fissure, a deep valley covered with skin, and I was confident that the brain pulsed immediately under that skin. He pulled his cap on and laughed in an amused, reassuring way. A crazy sea-cook did that, Mr. Pathurst, with a meat-axe. We were thousands of miles from anywhere, in the South Indian Ocean at the time, running our easting down, but the cook got the idea into his addled head that we were lying in Boston Harbor, and that I wouldn't let him go ashore. I had my back to him at the time, and I never knew what struck me. "'But how could you recover from so fearful an injury?' I questioned. "'There must have been a splendid surgeon on board, and you must have had wonderful vitality.' He shook his head. "'It must have been the vitality, and the molasses.' "'Molasses?' "'Yes, the captain had old-fashioned prejudices against antiseptics. He always used molasses for fresh wound-dressings. I lay in my bunk many weary weeks.' We had a long passage, and by the time we reached Hong Kong the thing was healed, there was no need for a shore surgeon, and I was standing my third mate's watch. We carried third mates in those days. Not for many a long day was I to realize the dire part that scar in Mr. Mallard's head was to play in his destiny and in the destiny of the Elsinore. 
Had I known at the time, Captain West would have received the most unusual awakening from sleep that he ever experienced, for he would have been routed out by a very determined, partially dressed passenger, with a proposition capable of going to the extent of buying the Elsinore outright with all her cargo, that she might be sailed straight back to Baltimore. As it was, I merely thought it a very marvellous thing that Mr. Mellaire should have lived so many years with such a hole in his head. We talked on, and he gave me many details of that particular happening, and of other happenings at sea on the part of the lunatics that seemed to infest the sea. And yet I could not like the man, and nothing he said nor in the manner of saying things could I find fault. He seemed generous, broad-minded, and, for a sailor, very much of a man of the world. It was easy for me to overlook his excessive suavity of speech and super-courtesy of social mannerism. It was not that, but all the time I was distressingly, and, I suppose, intuitively aware, though in the darkness I couldn't even see his eyes, that there, behind these eyes, inside that skull, was ambuscaded an alien personality that spied upon me, measured me, studied me, and that said one thing while it thought another thing. When I said good night and went below, it was with the feeling that I had been talking with the one half of some sort of a dual creature. The other half had not spoken. Yet I sensed it there, fluttering and quick, behind the mask of words and flesh. End of chapter 10《But as soon as I turned out the lamp and closed my eyes, I was troubled again. So hour after hour passed through which, between vain attempts to sleep, I managed to wade through many pages of Rosny's La Termite, a not very cheerful proceeding, I must say, concerned as it is with a microscopic and over-elaborate recital of Noel Servas's tortured nerves, bodily pains, and intellectual phantasma. At last I tossed the novel aside, damned all analytical Frenchmen, and found some measure of relief in the more genial and cynical Stendhal. Over my head I could hear Mr. Mellaire steadily pace up and down. At four the watches changed, and I recognized the age lag in Mr. Pike's promenade. Half an hour later, just as the steward's alarm went off, instantly checked by that light-sleeping Asiatic, the Elsinore began to heel over on my side. I could hear Mr. Pike barking and snarling orders, and at times a trample and shuffle of many feet passed over my head as the weird crew pulled and hauled. The Elsinore continued to heel over until I could see the water against my port, and then she gathered way and dashed ahead at such a rate that I could hear the stinging and singing of the foam through the circle of thick glass beside me. 
The steward brought me coffee, and I read till daylight and after, when Wada served me breakfast and helped me dress. He, too, complained of inability to sleep. He had been bunked with Nancy in one of the rooms in the midship house. Wada described the situation. The tiny room, made of steel, was airtight when the steel door was closed, and Nancy insisted on keeping the door closed. As a result, Wada, in the upper bunk, had stifled. He told me that the air had got so bad that the flame of the lamp, no matter how high it was turned, guttered down and all but refused to burn. Nancy snored beautifully through it all, while he had been unable to close his eyes. "'He is not clean,' quoth Wada. "'He is a pig. No more will I sleep in that place.' On the poop I found the Elsinore, with many of her sails furled, slashing along through a troubled sea under an overcast sky. Also I found Mr. Mallair marching up and down, just as I had left him hours before, and it took quite a distinct effort for me to realize that he had had the watch off between four and eight. Even then, he told me, he had slept from four until half-past seven. That is one thing, Mr. Pathurst, I always sleep like a baby, which means a good conscience, sir. Yes, a good conscience. And while he enunciated the platitude, I was uncomfortably aware that that alien thing inside his skull was watching me, studying me. In the cabin, Captain West smoked a cigar and read the Bible. Miss West did not appear, and I was grateful that to my sleeplessness the curse of seasickness had not been added. Without asking permission of anybody, Wada arranged a sleeping place for himself in a far corner of the big after-room, screening the corner with a solidly lashed wall of my trunks and empty book-boxes. It was a dreary enough day, no sun, with occasional splatters of rain and a persistent crash of seas over the weather-rail and swash of water across the deck. With my eyes glued to the cabin ports, which gave forward along the main deck, I could see the wretched sailors, whenever they were given some task of pull and haul, wet through and through by the boarding seas. Several times I saw some of them taken off their feet and rolled about in the creaming foam, and yet erect and staggering, with certitude of weight and strength, among these rolled men, these clutching, cowering ones, moved either Mr. Pike or Mr. Mallair. They were never taken off their feet. They never shrank away from a splash of spray or heavier bulk of downfalling water. They had fed on different food, were informed with a different spirit, were of iron in contrast with the poor miserables they drove to their bidding. In the afternoon I dozed for half an hour in one of the big chairs in the cabin. Had it not been for the violent motion of the ship, I could have slept there for hours, for the hives did not trouble. Captain West, stretched out on the cabin sofa, his feet in carpet slippers, slept enviably. By some instinct, I might say, in the deep of sleep, he kept his place and was not rolled off upon the floor. Also, he lightly held a half-smoked cigar in one hand. I watched him for an hour, and knew him to be asleep, and marveled that he maintained his easy posture and did not drop the cigar. After dinner there was no phonograph. The second dog watch was Mr. Pike's on deck. Besides, as he explained, the rolling was too severe. 
It would make the needle jump and scratch his beloved records. And no sleep. Another weary night of torment, and another dreary, overcast day and leaden, troubled sea. And no Miss West. Wada, too, is seasick, although heroically he kept his feet and tried to tend on me with glassy, unseeing eyes. I sent him to his bunk and read through the endless hours until my eyes were tired and my brain, between lack of sleep and overuse, was fuzzy. Captain West is no conversationalist. The more I see of him, the more I am baffled. I have not yet found a reason for that first impression I received of him. He has all the poise and air of a remote and superior being, and yet I wonder if it not be poise and air and nothing else. Just as I had expected, that first meeting, ere he spoke a word, to hear fall from his lips words of untold beneficence and wisdom, and then heard him utter mere social commonplaces, so now I find myself almost forced to conclude that his touch of race and beak of power and all the tall, aristocratic slenderness of him have nothing behind them. And yet, on the other hand, I can find no reason for rejecting that first impression. He has not shown any strength, but by the same token he has not shown any weakness. Sometimes I wonder what resides behind those clear blue eyes. Certainly I have failed to find any intellectual backing. I tried him out with William James' Varieties of Religious Experience. He glanced at a few pages, then returned it to me with the frank statement that it did not interest him. He has no books of his own. Evidently he is not a reader. Then what is he? I dared to feel him out on politics. He listened courteously, said sometimes yes and sometimes no, and when I ceased from very discouragement, said nothing. Aloof as the two officers are from the men, Captain West is still more aloof from his officers. I have not seen him address a further word to Mr. Mellaire than good morning on the poop. As for Mr. Pike, who eats three times a day with him, Scarcely any more conversation obtains between them, and I am surprised by what seems the very conspicuous awe with which Mr. Pike seems to regard his commander. Another thing. What are Captain West's duties? So far he has done nothing save eat three times a day, smoke many cigars, and each day stroll a total of one mile around the poop. The mates do all the work, and hard work it is, four hours on deck and four below, day and night with never a variation. I watch Captain West and am amazed. He will loll back in the cabin and stare straight before him for hours at a time, until I am almost frantic to demand of him what are his thoughts. Sometimes I doubt that he is thinking at all. I give him up. I cannot fathom him. Altogether a depressing day of rain splatter and wash of water across the deck. I can see now that the problem of sailing a ship with five thousand tons of coal around the horn is more serious than I had thought. So deep is the Elsinore in the water that she is like a log awash. Her tall six-foot bollocks of steel cannot keep the seas from boarding her. She has not the buoyancy one is accustomed to ascribe to ships. On the contrary, she has waited down until she is dead, so that, for this one day alone, I am appalled at the thought of how many thousands of tons of the North Atlantic 
have boarded her and poured out through her spouting scuppers and clanging ports yes a depressing day the two mates have alternated on deck and in their bunks captain west has dozed on the cabin sofa or read the bible miss west is still seasick i have tired myself out with reading and the fuzziness of my unsleeping brain makes for melancholy even wada is anything but a cheering spectacle crawling out of his bunk as he does at stated intervals and with sick glassy eyes trying to discern what my needs may be i almost wish i could get seasick myself i had never dreamed that a sea voyage could be so unenlivening as this one is proving End of chapter 11chapter twelve of the mutiny of the elsinore this librivox recording is in the public domain the mutiny of the elsinore by jack london chapter twelve another morning of overcast sky and leaden seas and of the elsinore under half her canvas clanging her deck ports spouting water from her scuppers and dashing eastward into the heart of the atlantic and i have failed to sleep half an hour all told at this rate in a very short time i shall have consumed all the cream of tartar on the ship i never have had hives like these before i can't understand it so long as i keep my lamp burning and read i am untroubled the instant i put out the lamp and drowse off the irritation starts and the lumps on my skin begin to form miss west may be seasick but she cannot be comatose because at frequent intervals she sends the steward to me with more cream of tartar i have had a revelation to-day i have discovered captain west he is a samurai you remember the samurai that h g wells describes in his modern utopia the superior breed of men who know things and are masters of life and of their fellow-men in a super-benevolent, super-wise way. Well, that is what Captain West is. Let me tell it to you. We had a shift of wind to-day. In the height of a southwest gale the wind shifted, in an instant, eight points, which is equivalent to a quarter of the circle. Imagine it. Imagine a gale howling from out of the southwest and then imagine the wind in a heavier and more violent gale abruptly smiting you from the northwest we had been sailing through a circular storm captain west vouchsafed to me before the event and the wind could be expected to box the compass clad in sea-boots oilskins and sou'wester i had for some time been hanging upon the rail at the break of the poop staring down fascinated at the poor devils of sailors repeatedly up to their necks in water or submerged or dashed like straws about the deck while they pulled and hauled stupidly blindly and in evident fear under the orders of mr pike mr pike was with them working them and working with them he took every chance they took yet somehow he escaped being washed off his feet though several times i saw him entirely buried from view there was more than luck in the matter for i saw him twice at the head of a line of men himself next to the pin and twice in this position i saw the north atlantic curl over the rail and fall upon them 
and each time he alone remained holding the turn of the rope on the pin while the rest of them were rolled and sprawled helplessly away almost it seemed to me good fun as at a circus watching their antics but i did not apprehend the seriousness of the situation until the wind screaming higher than ever and the sea of smoke and white with wrath two men did not get up from the deck one was carried away forward with a broken leg it was i r jacobson a dull-witted scandinavian and the other kid twist was carried away unconscious with a bleeding scalp in the height of the gusts in my high position where the seas did not break i found myself compelled to cling tightly to the rail to escape being blown away my face was stung to severe pain by the high-driving spindrift and i had a feeling that the wind was blowing the cobwebs out of my sleep-starved brain and all the time slender aristocratic graceful and streaming oilskins in apparent unconcern giving no orders effortlessly accommodating his body to the violent rolling of the elsinore captain west strolled up and down it was at this stage in the gale that he unbent sufficiently to tell me that we were going through a circular storm and that the wind was boxing the compass i did notice that he kept his gaze pretty steadily fixed on the overcast cloud-driven sky at last when it seemed the wind could not possibly blow more fiercely he found in the sky what he sought it was then that i first heard his voice a sea voice clear as a bell distinct as silver and of an ineffable sweetness and volume as it might be the trump of gabriel that voice effortless dominating the mighty thread of the storm made articulate by the resistance of the elsinore shouted in all the stays bellowed in the shrouds thrummed the taut ropes against the steel masts and from the myriad tiny ropes far aloft evoked a devil's chorus of shrill pipings and screechings and yet through this bedlam of noise came captain west's voice as of a spirit visitant distinct unrelated mellow as all music and mighty as an archangel's call to judgment and it carried understanding and command to the man at the wheel and to mr pike waist-deep in the wash of sea below us and the man at the wheel obeyed and mr pike obeyed barking and snarling orders to the poor wallowing devils who wallowed on and obeyed him in turn and as the voice was the face this face i had never seen before it was the face of the spirit visitant chased with wisdom lighted by a splendor of power and calm perhaps it was the calm that smote me most of all it was as the calm of one who had crossed chaos to bless poor sea-worn men with the word that all was well it was not the face of the fighter to my thrilled imagination it was the face of one who dwelt beyond all strivings of the elements and broody dissensions of the blood the samurai had arrived in thunders and lightnings riding the wings of the storm directing the gigantic laboring elsinore in all her intricate massiveness commanding the wisps of human to his will which was the will of wisdom and then that wonderful gabriel voice of his silent while his creatures labored as well unconcerned detached and casual 
more slenderly tall and aristocratic than ever in his streaming oilskins captain west touched my shoulder and pointed astern over our weather quarter i looked and all that i could see was a vague smoke of sea and air and a cloud-bank of sky that tore at the ocean's breast and at the same moment the gale from the southwest ceased there was no gale no moving zephyrs nothing but a vast quietude of air what is it i gasped out of equilibrium from the abrupt cessation of wind the shift he said there she comes and it came from the northwest a blast of wind a blow an atmospheric impact that bewildered and stunned and again made the elsinore harp protest it forced me down on the rail i was like a windle straw as i faced this new abruptness of gale it drove the air back into my lungs so that i suffocated and turned my head aside to breathe in the lee of the draught the man at the wheel again listened to the gabriel voice and mr pike on the deck below listened and repeated the will of the voice and captain west in slender and stately balance leaned into the face of the wind and slowly paced the deck it was magnificent now and for the first time i knew the sea and the men who overlord the sea captain west had vindicated himself exposited himself at the height and crisis of the storm he had taken charge of the elsinore and mr pike had become what in truth was all he was the foreman of a gang of men the slave-driver of slaves serving the one from beyond the samurai a minute or so longer captain west strolled up and down leaning easily into the face of this new and abominable gale arresting his back against it and then he went below pausing for a moment his hand on the knob of the chart-room door to cast a last measuring look at the storm-white sea and wrath-sombre sky he had mastered ten minutes later below passing the open cabin door i glanced in and saw him sea-boots and storm trappings were gone his feet in carpet slippers rested on a hassock while he lay back in the big leather chair smoking dreamily his eyes wide open absorbed non-seeing or if they saw seeing things beyond the reeling cabin walls and beyond my ken i have developed an immense respect for captain west though now i know him less than the little i thought i knew him before End of chapter 12 Chapter 13 of The Mutiny of the Elsinore This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London Chapter 13 Small wonder that Miss West remained seasick on an ocean like this, which has become a factory where the varying gales manufacture the selectest and most mountainous brands of cross seas the way the poor elsinore pitches plunges rolls and shivers with all her lofty spars and masts and all her five thousand tons of dead-weight cargo is astonishing to me she is the most erratic thing imaginable yet mr pike with whom i now pace the poop on occasion tells me that coal is a good cargo and that the elsinore is well loaded because he saw to it himself 
he will pause abruptly in the midst of his interminable pacing in order to watch her in her maddest antics the sight is very pleasant to him for his eyes glisten and a faint glow seems to irradiate his face and impart to it a hint of ecstasy the elsinore has a snug place in his heart i am confident he calls her behavior admirable and at such times will repeat to me that it was he who saw to her loading it is very curious the habituation of this man through a long life on the sea to the motion of the sea there is a rhythm to this chaos of crossing buffeting waves i sense the rhythm although i cannot solve it but mr pike knows it again and again as we paced up and down this afternoon when to me nothing unusually antic seemed impending he would seize my arm as i lost balance and as the elsinore smashed down on her side and heeled over and over with a colossal roll that seemed never to end and it always ended with an abrupt snap of the whip effect as she began the corresponding roll to windward in vain i strove to learn how mr pike forecasts these antics and i am driven to believe that he does not consciously forecast them at all he feels them he knows them they and the sea are ingrained in him toward the end of our little promenade i was guilty of impatiently shaking off a sudden seizure of my arm in his big paw if ever in an hour the elsinore had been less gymnastic than at that moment i had not noticed it so i shook off the sustaining clutch and the next moment the elsinore had smashed down and buried a couple of hundred feet of her starboard rail beneath the sea while i had shot down the deck and smashed myself breathless against the wall of the chart-house my ribs and one shoulder are sore from it yet now how did he know and he never staggers nor seems in danger of being rolled away on the contrary such a surplus of surety of balance has he that time and again he lent his surplus to me i begin to have more respect not for the sea but for the men of the sea and not for the sweepings of seamen that are as slaves on our decks but for the real seamen who are their masters for captain west for mr pike yes and for mr mallaire dislike him as i do as early as three in the afternoon the wind still a gale went back to the southwest mr mallaire had the deck and he went below and reported the change to captain west we'll wear ship at four mr pathurst the second mate told me when he came back you'll find it an interesting manoeuvre but why wait till four i asked the captain's orders sir the watches will be changing and we'll have the use of both of them without working a hardship on the watch below by calling it out now and when both watches were on deck captain west again in oilskins came out of the chart-house mr pike out on the bridge took charge of the many men who on deck and on the poop were to manage the mizzen braces while mr mallaire went forward with his watch to handle the fore and main braces it was a pretty manoeuvre a play of leverages by which they eased the force of the wind on the after part of the elsinore and used the force of the wind on the forward part captain west gave no orders whatever 
and, to all intents, was quite oblivious of what was being done. He was again the favoured passenger, taking a stroll for his health's sake, and yet I knew that both his officers were uncomfortably aware of his presence, and were keyed to their finest seamanship. I know now Captain West's position on board. He is the brains of the Elsinore. He is the master strategist. There is more in directing a ship on the ocean than in standing watches and ordering men to pull and haul. They are pawns, and the two officers are pieces, with which Captain West plays the game against sea and wind and season and ocean current. He is the knower. They are his tongue by which he makes his knowledge articulate. A bad night, equally bad for the Elsinore and for me. She is receiving a sharp buffeting at the hands of the wintry North Atlantic. I fell asleep early, exhausted from lack of sleep, and awoke in an hour, frantic with my lumped and burning skin. More cream of tartar, more reading, more vain attempts to sleep, until shortly before five, when the steward brought me my coffee, I wrapped myself in my dressing gown, and like a being distracted, prowled into the cabin. I dozed in the leather chair, and was thrown out by a violent roll of the ship. I tried the sofa, sinking to sleep immediately, and immediately thereafter finding myself precipitated to the floor. I am convinced that when Captain West naps on the sofa he is only half asleep. How else can he maintain so precarious a position, unless, in him too, the sea and its motion be ingrained? I wandered into the dining room, wedged myself into a screwed chair, and fell asleep, my head in my arms, my arms on the table. And at quarter past seven the steward roused me by shaking my shoulders. It was time to set table. Heavy with the brief heaviness of sleep I had had, I dressed and stumbled up onto the poop in the hope that the wind would clear my brain. Mr. Pike had the watch, and with sure, age-lagging step he paced the deck. The man is a marvel, sixty-nine years old, a life of hardship, and as sturdy as a lion. Yet of the past night alone his hours had been four to six in the afternoon on deck, eight to twelve on deck, and four to eight in the morning on deck. In a few minutes he would be relieved, but at midday he would again be on deck. I leaned on the poop rail and stared forward along the dreary waste of deck, Every port and scupper was working to ease the weight of North Atlantic that perpetually fell on board. Between the rush of the cascades, streaks of rust showed everywhere. Some sort of a wooden pinrail had carried away on the starboard rail at the foot of the mizzen shrouds, and an amazing raffle of ropes and tackles washed about. Here Nancy and half a dozen men worked sporadically, and in fear of their lives, to clear the tangle. The long-suffering bleakness was very pronounced on Nancy's face, and when the walls of water, in impending downfall, reared above the Elsinore's rail, he was always the first to leap for the lifeline which had been stretched fore and aft across the wide space of deck. The rest of the men were scarcely less backward in dropping their work and springing to safety 
if safety it might be called to grip a rope in both hands and have legs sweep out from under and be wrenched full length upon the boiling surface of an ice-cold flood small wonder they looked wretched bad as their condition was when they came aboard at baltimore they look far worse now what if the last several days of wet and freezing hardship from time to time completing his forward pace along the poop mr pike would pause ere he retraced his steps and snort sardonic glee at what happened to the poor devils below the man's heart is callous a thing of iron he has endured and he has no patience nor sympathy with these creatures who lack his own excessive iron i noticed the stone-deaf man the twisted oaf whose face i have described as being that of an ill-treated and feeble-minded fawn his bright liquid pain-filled eyes were more filled with pain than ever his face still more lean and drawn with suffering and yet his face showed an excess of nervousness sensitiveness and a pathetic eagerness to please and do I could not help observing that, despite his dreadful sense handicap and his wrecked, frail body, he did the most work, was always the last of the group to spring to the lifeline, and always the first to loose the lifeline and slosh knee-deep or waist-deep through the churning water to attack the immense and depressing tangle of rope and tackle. I remarked to Mr. Pike that the men seemed thinner and weaker than when they came on board, and he delayed replying for a moment while he stared down at them with that cattle-buyer's eye of his. "'Sure they are,' he said disgustedly. "'A weak breed, that's what they are. Nothing to build on, no stamina. The least thing drags them down. Why, in my day we grew fat on work like that. Only we didn't. We worked so hard there wasn't any chance for fat.' We kept in fighting trim, that was all. But as for this scum and slum... Say, you remember, Mr. Pathurst, that man I spoke to the first day who said his name was Charles Davis? The one you thought there was something the matter with? Yes, and there was, too. He's in that midship room with the Greek now. He'll never do a tap of work the whole voyage. He's a hospital case if there ever was one. Talk about shot to pieces... He's got holes in him I could shove my fist through. I don't know whether they're perforating ulcers, or cancers, or cannon-shot wounds, or what not. And he had the nerve to tell me they showed up after he came on board. And he had them all the time? I asked. All the time. Take my word, Mr. Pathurst, they're years old. But he's a wonder. I watched him those first days, sent him aloft, had him down in the forehold, trimming a few tons of coal, did everything to him, and he never showed a wince. Being up to the neck in salt water finally fetched him, and now he's reported off duty, for the voyage. And he'll draw his wages for the whole time, have all night in, and never do a tap. Oh, he's a hot one to have passed over on us, and the Elsinore's another man short. Another, I exclaimed, is the Greek going to die? No fear, I'll have him stirring in a few days. I refer to the misfits. If we rolled a dozen of them together, they wouldn't make one real man. I'm not saying it to alarm you, for there's nothing alarming about it, but we're going to have proper hell this voyage. He broke off to stare reflectively at his broken knuckles, as if estimating how much drive was left in them, then sighed and concluded, 
Well, I can see I've got my work cut out for me. Sympathizing with Mr. Pike is futile. The only effect is to make his mood blacker. I tried it, and he retaliated with, You ought to see the bloke with the curvature of the spine in Mr. Mallaire's watch. He's a proper hobo, too, and a landlubber, and don't weigh more'n a hundred pounds, and must be fifty years old, and he's got curvature of the spine, and he's an able seaman, if you please, on the Elsinore. And worse than all that, he puts it over on you. He's nasty, he's mean, he's a viper, a wasp. He ain't afraid of anything because he knows you dastn't hit him for fear of croaking him. Oh, he's a pearl of purest ray serene, if anyone should slide down a backstay and ask you. If you fail to identify him any other way, his name is Mulligan Jacobs. After breakfast, again on deck, in Mr. Mallaire's watch, I discovered another efficient. He was at the wheel, a small, well-knit, muscular man of, say, forty-five, with black hair graying on the temples, a big eagle face, swarthy, with keen, intelligent black eyes. Mr. Mallaire vindicated by judgment by telling me the man was the best sailor in his watch, a proper seaman. When he referred to the man as the Maltese Cockney, and I asked why, he replied, First, because he is Maltese, Mr. Pathurst, and next, because he talks Cockney like a native. And depend upon it, he heard bow bells before he lisped his first word. And has O'Sullivan bought Andy Fay's sea boots yet? I queried. It was at this moment that Miss West emerged upon the poop. She was as rosy and vital as ever, and certainly if she had been seasick, she flew no signals of it. As she came toward me, greeting me, I could not help remarking again the lithe and springy limb movement with which she walked and her fine, firm skin. Her neck, free in a sailor collar, with white sweater open at the throat, seemed almost redoubtably strong to my sleepless, jaunted eyes. Her hair, under a white knitted cap, was smooth and well-groomed. In fact, the totality of impression she conveyed was of a well-groomedness one would not expect of a sea-captain's daughter, much less of a woman who had been seasick. Life, that is the key of her, the essential note of her, life and health. I'll wager she has never entertained a morbid thought in that practical, balanced, sensible head of hers. "'And how have you been?' she asked, then rattled on with sheer exuberance ere I could answer. "'Had a lovely night's sleep. I was really over my sickness yesterday, but I just devoted myself to resting up. I slept ten solid hours. What do you think of that?' "'I wish I could say the same,' I replied with appropriate dejection, as I swung in beside her, for she had evinced her intention of promenading.' oh then you've been sick on the contrary i answered dryly and i wish i had been i haven't had five hours sleep all told since i came on board these pestiferous hives i held up a lumpy wrist to show she took one glance at it halted abruptly and neatly balancing herself to the roll took my wrist in both her hands and gave it close scrutiny mercy she cried and then began to laugh i was of two minds 
her laughter was delightful to the ear there was such a mellowness and healthiness and frankness about it on the other hand that it should be directed at my misfortune was exasperating i suppose my perplexity showed in my face for when she had eased her laughter and looked at me with a sobering countenance she immediately went off into more peals you poor child she gurgled at last and when i think of all the cream of tartar i made you consume it was rather presumptuous of her to poor child me and i resolved to take advantage of the data i already possessed in order to ascertain just how many years she was my junior she had told me she was twelve years old the time the dixie collided with a river steamer in san francisco bay very well all i had to do was to ascertain the date of that disaster and i had her but in the meantime she laughed at me and my hives i suppose it is er humorous in some sort of way i said a bit stiffly only to find there was no use in being stiff with miss west for it only set her off into more laughter what you needed she announced with fresh gurglings was an exterior treatment don't tell me i've got the chicken-pox or the measles i protested no she shook her head emphatically while she enjoyed another paroxysm what you are suffering from is a severe attack she paused deliberately and looked me straight in the eyes of bed-bugs she concluded and then all seriousness and practicality she went on but we'll have that righted in a jiffy i'll turn the elsinore's after-quarters upside down though i know there are none in father's room or mine and though this is my first voyage with mr pike i know he's too hard bitten here i laughed at her involuntary pun an old sailor not to know that his room is clean yours i was perturbed for fear she was going to say i had brought them on board have most probably drifted in from ford they always have them forward and now mr pathurst i am going to attend to your case you'd better get your wada to make up a camping kit for you the next couple of nights you'll spend in the cabin or chart room and be sure wada removes all silver and metallic tarnishable stuff from your rooms there's going to be all sorts of fumigating and tearing out of woodwork and rebuilding trust me i know the vermin End of chapter 13「『The Mutiny of the Elsinore』This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London Chapter 14 Such a cleaning up and turning over. For two nights, one in the chart room and one on the cabin sofa, I have soaked myself in sleep, and I am now almost stupid with excess of sleep. The land seems very far away. By some strange quirk, I have an impression that weeks or months have passed since I left Baltimore on that bitter March morning. And yet it was March 28th, and this is only the first week in April. I was entirely right in my first estimation of Miss West. She is the most capable, practically masterful woman I have ever encountered. What passed between her and Mr. Pike I do not know, but whatever it was, she was convinced that he was not the erring one. In some strange way, my two rooms are the only ones which have been invaded by this plague of vermin. Under Miss West's instructions, 
bunks, drawers, shelves, and all superficial woodwork have been ripped out. She worked the carpenter from daylight till dark, and then, after a night of fumigation, two of the sailors, with turpentine and white lead, put the finishing touches on the cleansing operations. The carpenter is now busy rebuilding my rooms. Then will come the painting, and, in two or three more days, I expect to be settled back in my quarters. Of the men who did the turpentining and white-letting, there have been four. Two of them were quickly rejected by Miss West as not being up to the work. The first one, Steve Roberts, which he told me was his name, is an interesting fellow. I talked with him quite a bit ere Miss West sent him packing, and told Mr. Pike that she wanted a real sailor. This is the first time Steve Roberts has ever seen the sea. How he happened to drift from the western cattle ranges to New York he did not explain, any more than did he explain how he came to ship on the Elsinore. But here he is, not a sailor on horseback, but a cowboy on the sea. He is a small man, but most powerfully built. His shoulders are very broad, and his muscles bulge under his shirt, and yet he is slender-waisted, lean-limbed, and hollow-cheeked. This last, however, is not due to sickness or ill health. Tyro as he is on the sea, Steve Roberts is keen and intelligent. Yes, and crooked. He has a way of looking straight at one with utmost frankness while he talks, and yet it is at such moments I get most strongly the impression of crookedness. But he is a man, if trouble should arise, to be reckoned with. In ways he suggests a kinship with the three men Mr. Pike took so instant a prejudice against, Kid Twist, Nosey Murphy, and Bert Rhine. And I have already noticed, in the dog-watches, that it is with this trio that Steve Roberts chums. The second sailor Miss West rejected, after silently watching him work for five minutes, was Mulligan Jacobs, the wisp of a man with curvature of the spine. But before she sent him packing, other things occurred in which I was concerned. I was in the room when Mulligan Jacobs first came in to go to work, and I could not help observing the startled, avid glance he threw at my big shelves of books. He advanced on them in the way a robber might advance on a secret hoard of gold, and as a miser would fondle gold, so Mulligan Jacobs fondled these book titles with his eyes. And such eyes, all the bitterness and venom Mr. Pike had told me the man possessed was there in his eyes. They were small, pale blue, and gimlet pointed with fire. His eyelids were inflamed, and but served to ensanguine the bitter and cold-blazing intensity of the pupils. The man was constitutionally a hater, and I was not long in learning that he hated all things except books. "'Would you care to read some of them?' I said hospitably. All the caress in his eyes for the books vanished as he turned his head to look at me, and ere he spoke I knew that I, too, was hated. "'It's hell, ain't it? You with a strong body and servants to carry for you a weight of books like this, and me with a curved spine that puts the pot-hooks of hell-fire into my brain.' How can I possibly convey the terrible venomousness with which he uttered these words? I know that Mr. Pike, dragging his feet down the hall, past my open door, gave me a very gratifying sense of safety. 
being alone in the room with this man seemed much the same as if i were locked in a cage with a tiger-cat the devilishness the wickedness and above all the pitch of glaring hatred with which the man eyed me and addressed me were most unpleasant i swear i knew fear not calculated caution not timid apprehension but blind panic unreasoned terror the malignancy of the creature was blood-curdling nor did it require words to convey it it poured out from him out of his red-rimmed blazing eyes out of his withered twisted tortured face out of his broken nailed crooked talons of hands and yet in that very moment of instinctive startle and repulsion the thought was in my mind that with one hand i could take the throat of the weazened wisp of a crippled thing and throttle the malformed life out of it but there was little encouragement in such thought no more than a man might feel in a cave of rattlesnakes or a pit of centipedes for crush them with his very bulk nevertheless they would first sink their poison into him and so with this mulligan jacobs my fear of him was the fear of being infected with his venom i could not help it for i caught a quick vision of the black and broken teeth i had seen in his mouth sinking into my flesh polluting me eating me with their acid destroying me one thing was very clear in the creature was no fear absolutely he did not know fear he was as devoid of it as the fetid slime one treads underfoot in nightmares lord lord that is what the thing was a nightmare you suffer pain often i asked attempting to get myself in hand by the calculated use of sympathy the hooks are in me in the brain white-hot hooks that burn and burn was his reply but by what damnable right do you have all these books and time to read em and all night in to read em and soak in them when me brain's on fire and i'm watch and watch and me broken spine won't let me carry half a hundred weight of books about with me another madman was my conclusion and yet i was quickly compelled to modify it for thinking to play with a rattle-brain i asked him what were the books up to half a hundredweight he carried and what were the writers he preferred his library he told me among other things included first and foremost a complete byron next was a complete shakespeare also a complete browning in one volume a full half-dozen he had in the forecastle of renan a stray volume of lecky winwood reed's martyrdom of man several of carlyle and eight or ten of zola zola he swore by though anatoly french was a prime favorite he might be mad was my revised judgment but he was most differently mad from any madman i had ever encountered i talked on with him about books and bookmen he was most universal and particular he liked o henry george moore was a cad and a four-flusher edgar saldus's anatomy of negation was profounder than kant maeterlinck was a mystic frump emerson was a charlatan ibsen's ghosts was the stuff though ibsen was a bourgeois lickspittler hein was the real goods he preferred flambert to de maupassant and turgenev to tolstoy but gorky was the best of the russian boiling john maysfield knew what he was writing about and joseph conrad was living too fat to turn out the stuff he first turned out and so it went 
the most amazing running commentary on literature i had ever heard i was hugely interested and i quizzed him on sociology yes he was a red and knew his kropotkin but he was no anarchist on the other hand political action was a blind alley leading to reformism and quietism political socialism had gone to pot while industrial unionism was the logical culmination of marxism he was a direct actionist the mass strike was the thing sabotage not merely as a withdrawal of efficiency but as a keen destruction of profits policy was the weapon of course he believed in the propaganda of the deed but a man was a fool to talk about it his job was to do it and keep his mouth shut and the way to do it was to shoot the evidence of course he talked but what of it didn't he have curvature of the spine he didn't care when he got his and woe to the man who tried to give it to him and while he talked he hated me he seemed to hate the things he talked about and espoused i judged him to be of irish descent and it was patent that he was self-educated when i asked him how it was he had come to see he replied that the hooks in his brain were as hot one place as another he unbent enough to tell me that he had been an athlete when he was a young man a professional foot-racer in eastern canada and then his disease had come upon him and for a quarter of a century he had been a common tramp and vagabond and he bragged of a personal acquaintance with more city prisons and county jails than any men that ever existed it was at this stage in our talk that mr pike thrust his head into the doorway he did not address me but he favoured me with a most sour look of disapprobation mr pike's countenance is almost petrified any expression seems to crack it with the exception of sourness but when mr pike wants to look sour he has no difficulty at all his hard-skinned hard-muscled face just flows to sourness evidently he condemned my consuming mulligan jacobs time to mulligan jacobs he said in his customary snarl go on and get to your work chew the rag in your watch below and then i got a sample of mulligan jacobs the venom of hatred i had already seen in his face was as nothing compared with what now was manifested i had a feeling that like stroking a cat in cold weather did i touch his face it would crackle electric sparks ah go to hell you old stiff said mulligan jacobs if ever i had seen murder in a man's eyes i saw it then in the mate's he lunged into the room his arm tense to strike the hand not open but clenched one stroke of that bear's paw and mulligan jacobs and all the poisonous flame of him would have been quenched in the everlasting darkness but he was unafraid like a cornered rat like a rattlesnake on the trail unflinching sneering snarling he faced the irate giant more than that he even thrust his face forward on its twisted neck to meet the blow it was too much for mr pike it was too impossible to strike that frail crippled repulsive thing it's me that can call you the stiff said mulligan jacobs i ain't no larry go on and hit me why don't you hit me and mr pike was too appalled to strike the creature he whose whole career on the sea had been that of a bucko driver in the shambles could not strike this fractured splinter of a man 
I swear that Mr. Pike actually struggled with himself to strike. I saw it, but he could not. "'Go on to your work,' he ordered. "'The voyage is young yet, Mulligan. I'll have you eaten out of my hand before it's over.' And Mulligan Jacob's face thrust another inch closer on its twisted neck, while all his concentrated rage seemed on the verge of bursting into incandescence. So immense and tremendous was the bitterness that consumed him that he could find no words to clothe it. All he could do was to hawk and guttural deep in his throat until I should not have been surprised had he spat poison in the mate's face. And Mr. Pike turned on his heel and left the room beaten, absolutely beaten. I can't get it out of my mind. The picture of the mate and the cripple facing each other keeps leaping up under my eyelids. This is different from the books and from what I know of existence. It is revelation. Life is a profoundly amazing thing. What is this bitter flame that informs Mulligan Jacobs? How dare he, with no hope of any prophet, not a hero, not a leader of a forlorn hope, nor a martyr to God, but a mere filthy, malignant rat, how dare he, I ask myself, be so defiant, so death-inviting? The spectacle of him makes me doubt all the schools of the metaphysicians and the realists. No philosophy has a leg to stand on that does not account for Mulligan Jacobs, and all the midnight oil of philosophy I have burned does not enable me to account for Mulligan Jacobs, unless he be insane, and then I don't know. Was there ever such a freight of human souls on the sea as these humans with whom I am herded on the Elsinore? And now, working in my rooms, white-letting and turpentining is another one of them. I have learned his name. It is Arthur Deacon. He is the pallid, furtive-eyed man whom I observed the first day when the men were routed out of the forecastle to man the windlass, the man I so instantly adjudged a drug fiend. He certainly looks it. I asked Mr. Pike his estimate of the man. White slaver, was his answer. Had to skin out of New York to save his skin. He'll be consortin' with those other three larrikins I gave a piece of my mind to. And what do you make of them? I asked. A month's wages to a pound of tobacco that a district attorney, or a committee of some sort investigating the New York police, is lookin' for em right now. I'd like to have the cash somebody put up in New York to send them on this getaway. Oh, I know the breed. Gangsters, I queried. That's what. But I'll trim their dirty hides. I'll trim em. Mr. Pathurst, this voyage ain't started yet, and this old stiff's a long way from his last legs. I'll give them a run for their money. Why, I've buried better men than the best of them aboard this craft, and I'll bury some of them that think me an old stiff. He paused and looked at me solemnly for a full half-minute. Mr. Pathurst, I've heard you're a writing man, and when they told me at the agent's you were going along passenger, I made a point of going to see your play. Now, I'm not saying anything about that play one way or the other, but I just want to tell you that as a writing man you'll get stuff in plenty to write about on this voyage. Hell's going to pop, believe me, and right here before you is the stiff that'll do a lot of the poppin'. Some several and plenty is going to learn who's an old stiff. End of chapter 14
Chapter Fifteen of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London. Chapter Fifteen. How I have been sleeping. This relief of renewed normality is delicious, thanks to Miss West. Now, why did not Captain West or Mister Pike, both experienced men, diagnose my trouble for me? And then there was Wada but no it required miss west again i contemplate the problem of woman it is just such an incident among a million others that keeps the thinker's gaze fixed on woman they are truly the mothers and the conservers of the race rail as i will at miss west's red blood complacency of life yet i must bow my head to her life-giving to me Practical, sensible, hard-headed, a comfort-maker and a nest-builder, possessing all the distressing attributes of the blind, instinctive race-mother, nevertheless I must confess I am most grateful that she is along. Had she not been on the Elsinore, by this time I should have been so overwrought from lack of sleep that I would be biting my veins and howling, as mad a hatter as any of our cargo of mad hatters and so we come to it the everlasting mystery of woman one may not be able to get along with her yet it is patent as of old time that one cannot get along without her but regarding miss west i do entertain one fervent hope namely that she is not a suffragette that would be too much captain west may be a samurai but he is also human he was really a bit fluttery this morning in his reserved controlled way when he regretted the plague of vermin i had encountered in my rooms it seems he has a keen sense of hospitality and that he is my host on the elsinore and that although he is oblivious of the existence of the crew he is not oblivious of my comfort by his few expressions of regret it appears that he cannot forgive himself for his careless acceptance of the erroneous diagnosis of my affliction yes captain west is a real human man is he not the father of the slender-faced strapping-bodied miss west thank goodness that's settled was miss west's exclamation this morning when we met on the poop and after i had told her how gloriously i had slept and then that nightmare episode dismissed because forsooth for all practical purposes it was settled she next said come on and see the chickens and i accompanied her along the spidery bridge to the top of the midship house to look at the one rooster and the four dozen fat hens in the ship's chicken coop as i accompanied her my eyes dwelling pleasurably on that vital gait of hers as she preceded me I could not help reflecting that, coming down on the tug from Baltimore, she had promised not to bother me, nor require to be entertained. Come and see the chickens. Oh, the sheer female possessiveness of that simple invitation. For effrontery of possessiveness, is there anything that can exceed the nest-making, planet-populating, female, human woman? Come and see the chickens oh well the sailors forward may be hard-bitten but i can promise miss west that here aft is one male passenger unmarried and never married who is an equally hard-bitten adventurer on the sea of matrimony 
when i go over the census i remember at least several women superior to miss west who trilled their song of sex and failed to shipwreck me as i read over what i have written i noticed how the terminology of the sea has stolen into my mental processes involuntarily i think in terms of the sea another thing i notice is my excessive use of superlatives but then everything on board the elsinore is superlative i find myself continually combing my vocabulary in quest of just and adequate words yet i am aware of failure for example all the words of all the dictionaries would fail to approximate the exceeding terribleness of mullock and jacobs but to return to the chickens despite every precaution it was evident that they had had a hard time during the past days of storm it was equally evident that miss west even during her sea-sickness had not neglected them under her directions the steward had actually installed a small oil-stove in the big coop and she now beckoned him up to the top of the house as he was passing forward to the galley it was for the purpose of instructing him further in the matter of feeding them where were the grits they needed grits he didn't know the sack had been lost among the miscellaneous stores but mr pike had promised a couple of sailors that afternoon to overhaul the lazarette plenty of ashes she told the steward remember and if a sailor doesn't clean the coop every day you report to me and give them only clean food no spoiled scraps mind how many eggs yesterday the steward's eyes glistened with enthusiasm as he said he had got nine the day before and expected fully a dozen to-day the poor things said miss west to me you've no idea how bad weather reduces their lane she turned back upon the steward mind now you watch and find out which hens don't lay and kill them first and you ask me each time before you kill one i found myself neglected out there on top of the draughty house while miss west talked chickens with the chinese ex-smuggler but it gave me opportunity to observe her it is the length of her eyes that accentuates their steadiness of gaze helped of course by the dark brows and lashes i noted again the warm gray of her eyes and i began to identify her to locate her she is the physical type of the best of the womanhood of old new england nothing spare nor meagre nor bred out but generously strong and yet not quite what one would call robust when i said she was strapping body i erred i must fall back on my other word which will have to be the last miss west is vital bodied that is the key word when we had regained the poop and miss west had gone below i ventured my customary pleasantry with mr mellaire of and has o'sullivan bought andy fay's sea-boots yet not yet mr pathurst was the reply though he nearly got them early this morning come on along sir and i'll show you vouchsafing no further information the second mate led the way along the bridge across the midship house and the forward house from the front of the ladder looking down on number one hatch i saw two japanese with sail needles and twine sewing up a canvas swathed bundle that unmistakably contained a human body o'sullivan used a razor said mr mellaire and that is andy fay i cried no sir not andy 
That's a Dutchman. Christian Jesperson was his name on the articles. He got in O'Sullivan's way when O'Sullivan went after the boots. That's what saved Andy. Andy was more active. Jesperson couldn't get out of his own way, much less out of O'Sullivan's. There's Andy sitting over there. I followed Mr. Mellor's gaze and saw the burned-out, aged little Scotchman squatted on a spare spar and sucking a pipe. One arm was in a sling and his head was bandaged. Beside him squatted Mulligan Jacobs. They were a pair. Both were blue-eyed and both were malevolent-eyed. And they were equally emaciated. It was easy to see that they had discovered early in the voyage their kinship of bitterness. Andy Fay, I knew, was sixty-three years old, although he looked a hundred, and Mulliken Jacobs, who was only about fifty, made up for the difference by the furnace heat of hatred that burned in his face and eyes. I wondered if he sat beside the injured bitter one in some sense of sympathy, or if he were there in order to gloat. Around the corner of the house strolled Shorty, flinging up to me his inevitable clown grin. One hand was swathed in bandages. Must have kept Mr. Pike busy, was my comment to Mr. Mallair. He was sewing up cripples about all his watch from four to eight. What? I asked. Are there any more? One more, sir, a sheeny. I didn't know his name before, but Mr. Pike got it. Isaac B. Chance. I never saw in all my life at sea as many sheenies as are on board the Elsinore right now. Sheenies don't take to the sea as a rule. We've certainly got more than our share of them. Chance isn't badly hurt, but you ought to hear him whimper. Where's O'Sullivan? I inquired. In the midship house with Davis and without a mark. Mr. Pike got into the rumpus and put him to sleep with one on the jaw. And now he's lashed down and talking in a trance. He's thrown the fear of God into Davis. Davis is sitting up in his bunk with a marlin spike, threatening to brain O'Sullivan if he starts to break loose, and complaining that it's no way to run a hospital. He'd have padded cells, straight jackets, night and day nurses, and violent wards, I suppose, and a convalescence home in a Queen Anne cottage on the poop. Oh dear, oh dear, Mr. Mallier sighed. This is the funniest voyage and the funniest crew I've ever tackled. It's not going to come to a good end. Anybody can see that with half an eye. It'll be dead of winter off the horn, and a forecastle full of lunatics and cripples to do the work. Just take a look at that one, crazy as a bedbug. He's likely to go overboard any time. I followed his glance and saw Tony the Greek, the one who had sprung overboard the first day. He had just come around the corner of the house, and, beyond one arm in a sling, seemed in good condition. He walked easily and with strength, a testimonial to the virtues of Mr. Pike's rough surgery. My eyes kept returning to the canvas-covered body of Christian Jesperson and to the Japanese who sewed with sail-twine a sailor's shroud. One of them had his right hand in a huge wrapping of cotton and bandage. Did he get her, too? I asked. No, sir. He's the sailmaker. They're both sailmakers. He's a good one, too. Yatsuda is his name, but he's just had blood poisoning and lain in the hospital in New York for eighteen months. He flatly refused to let them amputate. He's all right now, but the hand is dead, all except the thumb and forefinger, and he's teaching himself to sew with his left hand. 
He's as clever a sailmaker as you'll find at sea. A lunatic and a razor make a cruel combination, I remarked. It's put five men out of commission, Mr. Mallor sighed. There's O'Sullivan himself, and Christian Jesperson gone, and Andy Fay, and Shorty, and the Sheeny. And the voyage not started yet. And there's Lars with the broken leg, and Davis laid off for keeps. Why, sir, we'll soon be that week it'll take both watches to set a staysail. Nevertheless, while I talked in a matter-of-fact way with Mr. Mallaire, I was shocked. No, not because death was aboard with us. I have stood by my philosophic guns too long to be shocked by death or by murder. What affected me was the utter, stupid bestiality of the affair. Even murder, murder for cause, I can understand. It is comprehensible that men should kill one another in the passion of love, of hatred, of patriotism, of religion. But this was different. Here was killing without cause, an orgy of blind brutishness, a thing monstrously irrational. Later on, strolling with Possum on the main deck, as I passed the open door of the hospital, I heard the muttering chant of O'Sullivan and peeped in. There he lay, lashed fast on his back in the lower bunk, rolling his eyes and raving. In the top bunk, directly above, lay Charles Davis calmly smoking a pipe. I looked for the marlin spike. There it was, ready to hand, on the bedding beside him. "'It's hell, ain't it, sir?' was his greeting. "'And how am I going to get any sleep with that baboon chattering away there? "'He never lets up. "'Keeps his chin music going right along when he's asleep, only worse. "'The way he grits his teeth is something awful. "'Now I leave it to you, sir. "'Is it right to put a crazy like that in with a sick man? "'And I am a sick man.' While he talked, the massive form of Mr. Pike loomed beside me and halted just out of sight of the man in the bunk, and the man talked on. By rights, I ought to have that lower bunk. It hurts me to crawl up here. It's inhumanity, that's what it is. And sailors at sea are better protected by the law than they used to be. And I'll have you for a witness to this before the court when we get to Seattle. Mr. Pike stepped into the doorway. "'Shut up, you damn sea lawyer, you,' he snarled. "'Haven't you played a dirty trick enough coming on board this ship in your condition? "'And if I have anything more out of you?' Mr. Pike was so angry he could not complete the threat. After sputtering for a moment, he made a fresh attempt. "'You, you, well, you annoy me. That's what you do.' "'I know the law, sir,' Davis answered promptly. "'I worked full able seaman on this here ship.' All hands can testify to that. I was aloft from the start. Yes, sir, and up to my neck in salt water day and night. And you had me below trim and coal. I did full duty and more until this sickness got me. You were petrified and rotten before you ever saw this ship, Mr. Pike broke in. The court'll decide that, sir, replied the imperturbable Davis. And if you go shouting off your seal all your mouth, Mr. Pike continued. I'll jerk you out of that and show you what real work is. And lay the owners open for lovely damages when we get in, Davis sneered. Not if I bury you before we get in, was the mate's quick, grim retort. And let me tell you, Davis, you ain't the first sea lawyer I've dropped over the side with a sack of coal to his feet. Mr. Pike turned, 
with a final damn sea lawyer and started along the deck i was walking behind him when he stopped abruptly mr pathurst not as an officer to a passenger did he thus address me his tone was imperative and i gave heed mr pathurst from now on the less you see aboard this ship the better that is all and again he turned on his heel and went his way End of chapter 15 Chapter 16 of the Mutiny of the Elsinore This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London Chapter 16 No, the sea is not a gentle place. It must be the very hardness of the life that makes all sea people hard. Of course, Captain West is unaware that his crew exists, and Mr. Pike and Mr. Mallair never address the men save to give commands. But Miss West, who is more like myself, a passenger, ignores the men. She does not even say good morning to the man at the wheel when she first comes on deck. Nevertheless, I shall, at least to the man at the wheel. Am I not a passenger? Which reminds me technically i am not a passenger the elsinore has no license to carry passengers and i am down on the articles as third mate and am supposed to receive thirty-five dollars a month wada is down as cabin boy although i paid a good price for his passage and he is my servant not much time is lost at sea in getting rid of the dead within an hour after i had watched the sailmakers at work christian jesperson was slid overboard feet first a sack of coal to his feet to sink him it was a mild calm day and the elsinore logging a lazy two knots was not hove to for the occasion at the last moment captain west came forward prayer-book in hand read the brief service for burial at sea and returned immediately aft it was the first time i had seen him forward i shall not bother to describe the burial all i shall say of it is that it was as sordid as christian jesperson's life had been and as his death had been as for miss west she sat in a deck chair on the poop busily engaged with some sort of fancy work when christian jesperson and his coal splashed into the sea the crew immediately dispersed the watch below going to its bunks the watch on deck to its work not a minute elapsed ere Mr. Mellor was giving orders, and the men were pulling and hauling. So I returned to the poop to be unpleasantly impressed by Miss West's smiling unconcern. "'Well, he's buried,' I observed. "'Oh,' she said, with all the tonelessness of disinterest, and went on with her stitching. She must have sensed my frame of mind, for, after a moment, she paused from her sewing and looked at me. "'Your first sea funeral, Mr. Pathurst?' "'Death at sea does not seem to affect you,' I said bluntly. "'Not any more than on the land,' she shrugged her shoulders. "'So many people die, you know. "'And when they are strangers to you... "'Well, what do you do on land when you learn that some workers have been killed in a factory you pass every day coming to town? "'It is the same on the sea.' it is too bad we are a hand short i said deliberately it did not miss her just as deliberately she replied yes isn't it and so early in the voyage too 
She looked at me, and when I could not forbear a smile of appreciation, she smiled back. Oh, I know very well, Mr. Pathurst, that you think me a heartless wretch. But it isn't that. It's, it's the sea, I suppose. And yet, I didn't know this man. I don't remember ever having seen him. At this stage of the voyage, I doubt if I could pick out half a dozen of the sailors as men I had ever laid eyes on. So why vex myself with even thinking of this stupid stranger who was killed by another stupid stranger? As well one might die of grief with reading the murder columns of the daily papers. And yet it seems somehow different, I contended. Oh, you'll get used to it, she assured me cheerfully, and returned to her sewing. I asked her if she had read Moody's Ship of Souls, but she had not. I searched her out further. She liked Browning, and was especially fond of the ring in the book. This was the key to her. She cared only for healthful literature, for the literature that exposits the vital lies of life. For instance, the mention of Schopenhauer produced smiles and laughter. To her all the philosophers of pessimism were laughable. The red blood of her would not permit her to take them seriously. I tried her out with a conversation I had had with De Caceres shortly before leaving New York. De Caceres, after tracing Jules de Gaultier's philosophic genealogy back to Schopenhauer and Nietzsche, had concluded with the proposition that out of their two formulas, de Gaultier had constructed an even profounder formula. The will to live of the one and the will to power of the other were, after all, only parts of de Gaultier's supreme generalization, the will to illusion. I flatter myself that even de Caceres would have been pleased with the way I repeated his argument. And when I had concluded it, Miss West promptly demanded if the realists might not be fooled by their own phrases as often and as completely as were the poor common mortals with the vital lies they never questioned. And there we were, an ordinary young woman who had never vexed her brains with ultimate problems, here such things stated for the first time, and immediately, and with a laugh, sweeps them all away. I doubt not that de Caceres would have agreed with her. Do you believe in God? I asked rather abruptly. She dropped her sewing into her lap, looked at me meditatively, then gazed on and away across the flashing sea and up into the azure dome of sky. And finally, with true feminine evasion, she replied, My father does. But you? I insisted. I really don't know. I don't bother my head about such things. I used to, when I was a little girl, and yet... Yes, surely I believe in God. At times, when I am not thinking about it at all, I am very sure, and my faith at all as well is just as strong as the faith of your Jewish friends in the phrases of the philosophers. That's all it comes to, I suppose, in every case, faith. But, as I say, why bother? Ah, I have you now, Miss West, I cried. You are a true daughter of Herodias. It doesn't sound nice, she said with a pout. And it isn't, I exulted. Nevertheless, it is what you are. It is Arthur Simon's poem, The Daughters of Herodias. Some day I shall read it to you, and you will answer. I know you will answer that you, too, have looked often upon the stars. 
we had just got upon the subject of music of which she possesses a surprisingly solid knowledge and she was telling me that debussy and his school held no particular charm for her when possum set up a wild yelping the puppy had strayed forward along the bridge to the midship house and had evidently been investigating the chickens when his disaster came upon him so shrill was his terror that we both stood up he was dashing along the bridge toward us at full speed yelping at every jump and continually turning his head back in the direction whence he came i spoke to him and held out my hand and was rewarded with a snap and clash of teeth as he scuttled past still with head turned back he went on along the poop before i could apprehend his danger mr pike and miss west were after him the mate was the nearer and with a magnificent leap gained the rail just in time to intercept possum who was blindly going overboard under the slender railing with a sort of scooping kick mr pike sent the animal rolling half across the poop howling and snapping more violently possum regained his feet and staggered on toward the opposite railing don't touch him mr pike cried as miss west showed her intention of catching the crazed little animal with her hands don't touch him he's got a fit but it did not deter her he was halfway under the railing when she caught him up and held him at arm's length while he howled and barked and slavered it's a fit said mr pike as the terrier collapsed and lay on the deck jerking convulsively perhaps a chicken pecked him said miss west at any rate get a bucket of water better let me take him i volunteered helplessly for i was unfamiliar with fits no it's all right she answered i'll take charge of him the cold water is what he needs he got too close to the coop and a peck on the nose frightened him into the fit first time i ever heard of a fit coming that way mr pike remarked as he poured water over the puppy under miss west's direction it's just a plain puppy fit they all get them at sea i think it was the sails that caused it i argued i've noticed that he is very afraid of them when they flap he crouches down in terror and starts to run you noticed how he ran with his head turned back i've seen dogs with fits do that when there was nothing to frighten them mr pike contended it was a fit no matter what caused it miss west stated conclusively which means that he has not been fed properly from now on i shall feed him you tell your boy that mr pathurst nobody is to feed possum anything without my permission at this juncture wada arrived with possum's little sleeping box and they prepared to take him below it was splendid of you miss west i said and rash as well and i won't attempt to thank you but i tell you what you take him he's your dog now she laughed and shook her head as i opened the chart-house door for her to pass no but i'll take care of him for you now don't bother to come below this is my affair and you would only be in the way wada will help me and i was rather surprised as i returned to my deck-chair and sat down to find how affected i was by the little episode i remembered at the first that my pulse had been distinctly exhilarated with the excitement of what had taken place and somehow as i leaned back in my chair and lighted a cigarette the strangeness of the whole voyage vividly came to me miss west and i talked philosophy and art on the poop of a stately ship in a circle of flashing sea 
while Captain West dreams of his far home, and Mr. Pike and Mr. Mallaire stand watch and watch and snarl orders, and the slaves of men pull and haul, and Possum has fits, and Andy Fay and Mulligan Jacobs burn with hatred unconsumable, and the small-handed half-caste Chinese cooks for all, and sundry buyers perpetually presses his abdomen, and O'Sullivan raves in the steel cell of the midship house, and Charles Davis lies about him nursing a marlin spike, and Christian Jesperson, miles astern, is deep sunk in the sea with a sack of coal at his feet. End of chapter 16「Seventeen of the Mutiny of the Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Mutiny of the Elsinore by Jack London. Chapter 17. Two weeks out today, on a balmy sea, under a cloud-flecked sky, and slipping an easy eight knots through the water to a light easterly wind. Captain West said he was almost convinced that it was the northeast trade. Also, I have learned that the Elsinore, in order to avoid being jammed down on Cape San Roque, on the Brazil coast, must first fight eastward almost to the coast of Africa. On occasion, on this traverse, the Cape Verde Islands are raised. No wonder the voyage from Baltimore to Seattle is reckoned at 18,000 miles. I found Tony, the suicidal Greek, stirring this morning when I came on deck. He seemed sensible enough, and quite rationally took off his hat when I said good morning to him. The sick men are improving nicely, with the exceptions of Charles Davis and O'Sullivan. The latter still is lashed to his bunk, and Mr. Pike has compelled Davis to attend on him. As a result, Davis moves about the deck, bringing food and water from the galley, and grumbling his wrongs to every member of the crew. Wada told me a strange thing this morning. It seems that he, the steward, and the two sailmakers foregather each evening in the cook's room, all being Asiatics, where they talk over ship's gossip. They seem to miss little, and Wada brings it all to me. The thing Wada told me was the curious conduct of Mr. Mallaire. They have sat in judgment on him, and they do not approve of his intimacy with the three gangsters forward. But Wada, I said, he is not that kind of a man. He is very hard and rough with all the sailors. He treats them like dogs. You know that. Sure, assented Wada. Other sailors he do that. But those three very bad men he make good friends. Lewis say second mate belong aft like first mate and captain. No good for second mate talk like friends with sailors. No good for ship. By and by, trouble. You see, Lewis say Mr. Mallaire crazy do that kind funny business. All of which, if it were true, and I saw no reason to doubt it, led me to inquire. It seems that the gangsters Kid Twist, Nosey Murphy, and Bert Rhine have made themselves cocks of the forecastle. Standing together, they have established a reign of terror and are ruling the forecastle. All their training in New York in ruling the slum brutes and weaklings and their gangs fits them for the part. As near as I could make out from Wada's tale, 
they first began on the two italians in their watch guido bombini and mike cipriani by means i cannot guess they have reduced these two wretches to trembling slaves as an instance the other night according to the ship's gossip bert rhine made bombini get out of bed and fetch him a drink of water isaac chance is likewise under their rule though he is treated more kindly Hermann Lunkenheimer, a good-natured but simple-minded dolt of a German, received a severe beating from the three because he refused to wash some of Nosey Murphy's dirty garments. The two bosuns are in fear of their lives with this clique, which is growing, for Steve Roberts, the ex-cowboy, and the white slaver, Arthur Deacon, have been admitted to it. I am the only one aft who possesses this information, and I confess I don't know what to do with it. I know Mr. Pike would tell me to mind my own business. Mr. Mellaire is out of the question, and Captain West hasn't any crew. And I fear Miss West would laugh at me for my pains. Besides, I understand that every forecastle has its bully, or group of bullies, so this is merely a forecastle matter and no concern of the afterguard. The ship's work goes on. The only effect I can conjecture is an increase in the woes of the unfortunates who must bow to this petty tyranny forward. Oh, and another thing Wada told me. The gangster clique has established its privilege of taking first cut of the salt beef and the meat kids. After that, the rest take the rejected pieces. But I will say, contrary to my expectations, the Elsinore's forecastle is well found. The men are not on whack. They have all they want to eat. A barrel of good hardtack stands always open in the forecastle. Lewis bakes fresh bread for the sailors three times a week. The variety of food is excellent, if not the quality. There is no restriction in the amount of water for drinking purposes. And I can only say that in this good weather, the men's appearance improves daily. Possum is very sick. Each day he grows thinner. Scarcely can I call him a perambulating skeleton, because he is too weak to walk. Each day, in this delightful weather, Wada, under Miss West's instructions, brings him up in his box and places him out of the wind on the awninged poop. She has taken full charge of the puppy and has him sleep in her room each night. I found her yesterday, in the chart room, reading up the Elsinore's medical library. Later on, she overhauled the medicine chest. She is essentially the life-giving, life-conserving female of the species. All her ways, for herself and for others, make toward life. And yet, and this is so curious it gives me pause, she shows no interest in the sick and injured forward. They are to her cattle, or less than cattle. As the life-giver and race-conserver, I should have imagined her a lady bondiful, tripping regularly into that ghastly steel-walled hospital room on the midship house, and dispensing gruel, sunshine, and even tracks. On the contrary, as with her father, these wretched humans do not exist. And still again, when the steward jammed a splinter under his nail, she was greatly concerned and manipulated the tweezers and pulled it out. The Elsinore reminds me of a slave plantation before the war, and Miss West is the lady of the plantation, interested only in the house slaves. 
the field slaves are beyond her ken or consideration and the sailors are the elsinore's field slaves why several days back when wada suffered from a severe headache she was quite perturbed and dosed him with aspirin well i suppose this is all due to her sea training she has been trained hard we have the phonograph in the second dog watch every other evening in this fine weather on the alternate evenings this period is mr pike's watch on deck but when it is his evening below even at dinner he betrays his anticipation by an eagerness ill-suppressed and yet on each such occasion he punctiliously waits until we ask if we are to be favoured with music then his hard-bitten face lights up although the lines remain hard as ever hiding his ecstasy and he remarks gruffly off-handedly that he guesses he can play over a few records and so every other evening we watch this killer and driver with lacerated knuckles and gorilla paws brushing and caressing his beloved discs ravished with the music of them and as he told me early in the voyage at such moments believing in god a strange experience is this life on the elsinore i confess while it seems that i have been here for long months so familiar am i with every detail of the little round of living that i cannot orient myself my mind continually strays from things non-understandable to things incomprehensible from our samurai captain with the exquisite gabriel voice that is heard only in the tumult and thunder of storm on to the ill-treated and feeble-minded fawn with the bright liquid pain-filled eyes to the three gangsters who rule the forecastle and seduce the second mate to the perpetually muttering o'sullivan in the steel-walled hole and the complaining davis nursing the marlin spike in the upper bunk and the christian jesperson somewhere adrift in this vastitude of ocean with a coal-sack at his feet at such times all the life on the elsinore becomes as unreal as life to the philosopher is unreal i am a philosopher therefore it is unreal to me but is it unreal to messrs pike and mellaire to the lunatics and idiots to the rest of the stupid herd forward i cannot help remembering a remark of de Casseri's. it was over the wine in moquen's said he the profoundest instinct in man is to war against the truth that is against the real he shuns facts from his infancy his life is a perpetual evasion miracle chimera and tomorrow keep him alive he lives on fiction and myth it is the lie that makes him free animals alone are given the privilege of lifting the veil of his is men dare not the animal awake has no fictional escape from the real because he has no imagination man awake is compelled to seek a perpetual escape into hope belief fable art god socialism immortality alcohol love from medusa truth he makes an appeal to maya lie ben will agree that i have quoted him fairly and so the thought comes to me that to all these slaves of the elsinore the real is real because they fictionally escape it one and all they are obsessed with the belief that they are free agents 
to me the real is unreal because i have torn aside the veils of fiction and myth my pristine fictional escape from the real making me a philosopher has bound me absolutely to the wheel of the real i the super realist am the only unrealist on board the elsinore therefore i who penetrated deepest in the whole phenomena of living on the elsinore see it only as phantasmagoria paradoxes i admit it all deep thinkers are drowned in the sea of contradictions but all the others on the elsinore sheer surface swimmers keep afloat on this sea forsooth because they have never dreamed its depth and i can easily imagine what miss west's practical hard-headed judgment would be on these speculations of mine after all words are traps i don't know what i know nor what i think i think this i do know i cannot orient myself i am the maddest and most sea-lost soul on board take miss west i am beginning to admire her why i know not unless it be because she is so abominably healthy and yet it is this very health of her the absence of any shred of degenerative genius that prevents her from being great for instance in her music a number of times now i have come in during the day to listen to her playing the piano is good and her teaching has evidently been of the best to my astonishment i learned that she is a graduate of bryn mawr and that her father took a degree from old bodowin long ago and yet she lacks in her music her touch is masterful she has the firmness and weight without sharpness or pounding of a man's playing the strength and surety that most women lack and that some women know they lack when she makes a slip she is ruthless with herself and replays until the difficulty is overcome and she is quick to overcome it yes and there is a sort of temperament in her work but there is no sentiment no fire when she plays chopin she interprets as sureness and neatness she is the master of chopin's technique but she never walks where chopin walks on the heights somehow she stops short of the fullness of music i did like her method with brahms and she was not unwilling at my suggestion to go over and over the three rhapsodies on the third intermesso she was at her best and a good best it was you are talking of dubisset she remarked i've got some of his stuff here but i don't get into it i don't understand it and there is no use in trying it doesn't seem altogether like real music to me it fails to get hold of me just as i fail to get hold of it yet you like mcdowell i challenged y yes she admitted grudgingly his new england idis and fireside tales and i like that finishman's stuff sibelius too although it seems to me too soft too richly soft too beautiful if you know what i mean it seems to cloy what a pity i thought that with that noble masculine touch of hers she is unaware of the deeps of music some day i shall try to get from her just what beethoven say and chopin mean to her she has not read shaw's perfect wagnerite nor had she ever heard of nietzsche's case of wagner she likes mozart 
and O. Bocciarini, and Leonardo Leo. Likewise, she is partial to Schumann, especially forest scenes, and she plays his papillons most brilliantly. When I closed my eyes, I could have sworn it was a man's fingers on the keys. And yet, I must say it, in the long run, her playing makes me nervous. I am continually led up to false expectations. Always, she seems just on the verge of achieving the big thing, the super big thing, and always she just misses it by a shade. Just as I am prepared for the culminating flash and illumination, I receive more perfection of technique. She is cold. She must be cold. Or else, and the theory is worth considering, she is too healthy. I shall certainly read to her the daughters of Herodias. End of chapter 17